0: Hello and welcome back to a very special third episode of Raw Sports uh, Quarantine Stream. Um I'm your host and head of sport, Josh uh, Sim. Um, it's a really we've got a really special episode today, um, and it's our first of the interview kind of interviews that we've got and. Um, we're looking obviously with sport not going on right now we're going to try and get more and more um uh, we're going to try and get a few interviews on um just to get some content out um but yeah we've got a special one like i said um we're going to do we've got a special guest and i'll bring him on when he's i'll bring him on in a sec um but it's going to work first half um hello to those who are here for the journalism um aspect and also hello to those who are here for the uh, Bundesliga aspect um so we've got um, let's – we'll bring him on now. We've got a football journalist, a freelance football journalist joining us. He's written um, for Forbes and Sky Sports in the past. And he currently uh, – he writes uh, for Futs- Stat And um, also this is Anfield. So we've got Chris Williams, who should be on with me now. Hi, Chris.
1: Hi, Josh. How are you?
0: Good, thanks. So, um, again, thank you so much for giving your time and coming on. No worries. Um, how, how have you been during this whole – have you been during this whole weird situation?
1: <laughs> yeah, um,
0: it has been a weird situation.
1: Yeah, I've been all right. I'm, I'm healthy, my family are healthy, my friends are healthy, so got no problems on that. Um just obviously work wise, there's nothing going on. So um, as I'm sure we'll discuss, freelance is a bit of a hazardous occupation. So when there's no games on, um freelancers are the first to go. So yeah, unfortunately, I think I think you call it in between jobs at the minute, but um once football comes back, I hopefully should be absolutely fine.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and I'll kick it off. We're doing a Q. I'll just make it clear. We've got we're going to start a join some q and I've got some broader questions to ask. And hopefully, those who are watching um, might want to chip in as well with questions of their own. Um, and I'll quickly just say, send in your questions, guys. Comment along. Um, we can bring it up. We will be able to bring up the questions onto the screen. And then we'll have a look and be able to answer them ourselves. Um, and um, yeah so the first question i've got really chris is um what is it what was it that kind of drew you to journalism obviously you know you've um you, you studied journalism and radio production in, in at, at University university liverpool college um what was it did you know that was something that you wanted to do or was it kind of just something that just you you kind of just fell into place and you kind of just went with it really Yes, it's,
1: it's a good question. I think you sort of you sort of know you want to be involved in writing in some aspects. So um, I was always quite a creative writer, even in high school. Um, you know, English teacher would used to say that I was a very creative writer. And it's something that I really took a lot of interest in. And um, what really forced me into journalism was that I started as a music journalist. So um, that's what I specialised in when I was at college. And I was quite fortunate at the time because it was the explosion of, you know guitar bands in the northwest i was in liverpool so i was able to go to college and cover the likes of cast the lars um, oasis all of those like local um, northwest bands the farm uh, are so many going all the way back um but yeah that's what got me into it um and that's what got me into the taste for writing really
0: yeah i mean going i mean what, do you have any favourite memories from the whole music from the music scene back then? Is there <laughs> anything that kind of stands out when you think well, about?
1: it yeah, there, there's so many. I ended up interviewing um, a, a band. I don't know if you might have heard of them, but if there's any indie um, kids out there, you might remember a band called Manson. They're from Chester. Um, I had them round my flat, okay. um, and they just ended up jamming while I was I- interviewing. That was quite cool. Um, I bumped into the Chemical Brothers in Cream um, and like just oh, wow. asked them if I could chat to them at some point, swap numbers, um, and then did an interview with them. So I think probably the Chemical Brothers was the was was the biggest time. And um, getting backstage with Paul Oakenfold at Cream as well. I mean, they just oh, some things that. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you can equate it to now going and interviewing football players. Like for the Atletico Madrid game um, in Madrid, I interviewed Van Dyke afterwards. And you know, they're, they're special oh, wow. times and. Um, you look, but I look back over those uh, mid to late 90s, uh, and yeah, there were some special music times and j- chilling and hanging with you know rock stars, and it's quite surreal. And it even is surreal looking back if you see him on TV now and think, Oh Christ, I was in a flat with him or uh, you know, I interviewed her, etc. Yeah, they um, he's yeah, quite fortunate, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, obviously. You're, uh, I think we might, we might, I think we've mentioned it at the top of the, at the top of the show, you're a freelancer. Um, how is it, how do you manage kind of freelancing, ensuring there's a constant workload that you've got on your plate? Um, obviously we mentioned, you know, you've written for Forbes Sky Sports News. You've, you now write for, uh, you write for Fußball Start and, and the Sandfield as well. How is it, what is it like to kind of try and keep a constant workflow going?
1: Yeah it is a bit of a challenge um, especially when you're just starting out it it is a challenge and um, I was lucky enough to um, write a blog that was picked up by a guy called Will Tidy who at the time worked for Bleacher Report as it was then BR football as it is now Um, and they gave me a position covering Liverpool with BR Um, that was like quite a fortunate aspect And, and from there this is Anfield and from there, I specialised in German football. And when Jurgen Klopp moved over, that made it a little bit easier because everybody <laughs> wanted to know about German football. And then people approach you: Can you write for us? Will you write for us? Um, and yeah, it, it's more. I think I've been very lucky. I've met the right people at the right time. Um, I know there's a lot of writers out there, some who are a lot better than me, who are struggling to get their work published. Um, it is all about networking, who you know, um, and, and what you know. Um, comes into it a little bit. But yeah, I've been quite lucky. But yeah, it is a stretch. Um, it's a constant challenge. Um, not in, under normal circumstances, it's a challenge, I think, as we come out of this, it'll be a pretty big challenge. But yeah, you've just got to get out and get your work out there. And, and it's just pitching, really, and pitching ideas to editors. And um, it, it can be rewarding. Sometimes it's a bit frustrating if you pitch to an editor and they say, we're not really in the market for that at the moment. And then you see their staff writers write something on it in a couple of days' time. Uh, that, that can be a bit of a pain but yeah, yeah. It, it, it's 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 challenging but the more work you get and the more lucky you are for other people to then approach you
0: yeah i mean when you're pitching i guess is it is it is it mainly long form pieces that you're pitching um on maybe topics that are topical or maybe even stuff that are off the off the mainstream i guess like is is that what you're kind of pitching
1: Um, Long form, you've got to really choose your um, outlets for that because there's not many. I mean, a lot of the Google Analytics into into journalism show that most readers have got about a four-minute concentration span. So about four minutes, you're looking at somewhere six to 800 words. So that would be a normal article. Um, Long form would be 3,000 word plus for me. Um, 1,500 is is probably medium form. But yeah, long form is 3,000 word. Something that you'll see in the athletic. Uh, It's a real niche market for that. So um i don't mind doing long form but you can make a lot more money doing short form
0: yeah yeah yeah. um i guess you know what would you what would you recommend to aspiring journalists um in terms of what i mean you mentioned like you know most people in the market for medium short form writers is that is that what um people should be practicing a lot more is that something that you know is that there's something where you know you can get more out of should um I think that's the right way of saying it. Yeah,
1: yeah. I understand what you mean. Um, I mean, my advice would be: don't specialise in in one particular area. So, no matter what journalism you you want to follow, if it's you know, sports journalism, whether it's golf or rugby or cricket or football, don't just don't just tie yourself down to oh, I only write fifteen hundred to three thousand words because you know some people will want shorter than that. Uh, just try and get as much experience as you can. I mean, long form is a real art form. Um, got a lot of time for the guys at the Athletic. Um, who write some exceptionally good long-form pieces. It's hard to be able to tell a story for that length of time and to keep people interested. Um, so that's a real yeah. art form. Um, but then news is a real art form because you know brevity is key on that. You need to get everything over in the shortest time possible. People don't want to read a thousand words of news. They want to read somewhere between two and four hundred words of news. So um, just practice, 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 practice. And if you've got uh, if you want to work for Sky Sports and you know have a high bar there then the best thing you can do is read everything that Sky Sports put out because then you'll get familiar with, you know, their house style. And that's the key thing, really. It's getting used to house styles. Everywhere's different. Sky i have got a very precise house style. Differs exceptionally from Forbes and um, business who have written for. So you need to be able to be flexible. Um, but, yeah, just practice and just, I mean, anyone that wants to be a, a journalist, be it politics or sports or whatever, um, no is the most common word you'll ever hear so don't get put off by it if you pitch an idea and someone says no don't let it get disheartened just keep pitching it keep pitching it and ask for feedback all the time always get feedback on your articles you know it's no good just an editor going yeah that's great thanks ask them why it was good how could it have been better you know what what more would they like to see so just trying to expand your knowledge all the time really would be my biggest piece of advice
0: yeah um you know i mean you talk about feedback is this, is that a lesson you kind of learned along the way is that is that kind of what other stuff have you kind of picked up along the way as you've kind of gone further into your journalism career yeah i
1: mean always asking um for feedback especially when you're starting out um any editor that you work for will know that you're new because you'll have chatted to them f- first hand so they'll know what experience you've got so they should hopefully try and mentor you a bit they should just throw you in the deep end and let you get on with it um but yeah, ask for feedback because you know, it doesn't matter if you've been writing one year or 20, 30 years, there's always stuff you can learn. So um, ask for that feedback. That, that's probably the key thing. And and ask for it as you go along and, and learn from other writers, speak to other journalists. I mean, uh, I'm more than happy to chat to you guys. and But likewise, you know, people who I look up to will more than... I mean, Henry Winter is a fantastic journalist. Not only is he one of the yeah. best writers at The Times, but... If you're at a match and, and he's got a spare moment, he's the, he's the type of guy who will speak to you and give you a little bit of advice. So, yeah, just introduce yourself and and just get as many contacts as you can would be my biggest advice, really.
0: Yeah. Um, what's kind of the most memorable... Do you have any pieces that stand out? Do you have any pieces that you've done that you've especially... You're really, like, particularly proud of, should we say, and um, that one thing kind of remember?
1: Um, yeah, I mean... On a normal day-to-day basis, I either cover matches, uh, opinion pieces mm-hmm. um, or a little bit of news. But um, when I was working with Forbes, I had a real good opportunity to, you know, cut my own way. And uh, I did an interview um, last month with um, Jordan Gard from the Women's Sports Association um, highlighting okay. yeah. the disparities between women, women footballers and male footballers, especially in this time. Um, that was a real pleasure to be able to bring that, you know, to a business audience um, I did a piece with yeah. a company called Connexon who've put a chip inside the Bundesliga ball. Um, so there's a real oh, wow. small microchip in there. Um, and to be able to report on that, the DFL picked that up and pushed it worldwide. So you know, it's a pretty proud thing. But I suppose that I would say that you have to be proud of everything that you put out. You, you can't put anything out half-hearted or a little bit lazy. It needs to be 100% for everything. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you interview players, uh, that's always a special Or You interview a manager or a coach, or even someone that just works at the club and can give you a different angle. So I uh, did a piece on, on Leicester City once and about their grass. Um, I spoke to their groundsman, and that was a real good insight because he's obviously a key specialist in that area, and you get to learn a little bit of uh, a little bit of things as you go on. But proudest wise I would probably say it's the piece I did pretty much second to last, which was, was trying to highlight the differences in, in women's football and how they've tried to respond to this COVID-19 situation.
0: Yeah, and obviously we'll, we'll touch upon um, football news in a bit. Um, what, you know, what, um, oh goodness, I had a question and I've just, it's just in my memory. Um, will it come back? I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of it, but uh, I'll get back to it. I'll get back to it. I did have one, um, but what was it, you know, when you transitioned from uh, music journalism to football journalism was there did you I mean there's obviously a lot of transferable skills in terms of writing stuff but was there you know when you uh, covering a gig to covering a game did you find it did you find any transition like were there any issues at all or was it quite seamless
1: um I know I'd say it was pretty seamless uh, now whether anybody that read anything would agree with that is it, a little bit different but um I think you need to have a passion so you know when i was younger i had a real i mean still got a real passion for music but when i was like 18 19 I, I had a real passion for music and going out and 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 maybe listening to music and listening to albums and gigs and trying to give them you know a write-up that i thought other people would want to hear um, and pretty much that's the same with football you you're telling a story and it's how you tell that story and i always think to myself would i want to read this and and if i wouldn't want to read it then there's pretty much be no point in writing it because you're trying to make it um, a story that someone can follow and go, actually, you know, that I really enjoyed that. I learned something from it. Um, or you know, I, I didn't particularly think of it that way. So when you're writing about football, you give an appreciation of the 90 minutes that have just gone on, um, you will watch a match different than the way I do. You know, you'll get a, a press box full of journalists and every single match report will be different. And I think that's the beauty of it really.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've, I've just remembered what I was gonna ask. Um you mentioned oh i think i mentioned it. you you do uh, you oh actually no i don't i don't think i did you contribute to the gang Pressing podcast yeah and obviously podcasts are becoming more and more popular in the media landscape do you find that you know if you're an aspiring journalist do you reckon having that kind of versatility to kind of play around with different media uh layouts and outlets does that that would surely benefit your career Oh yeah
1: yeah i mean that to be honest i'm glad you remember that question because it's a fabulous question so um, years ago I'm, I'm not that far so let's go back five or six years um, you know I would have been a writer um, there's no space for that anymore in today's modern writing or today's modern journalism you need to be able to edit video you need to be able to look after audio you need to be able to um, do some sort of photo collaboration so can you do photo manipulation on Photoshop can you use um, audition can you use Premiere Pro uh, not just can you write? No one's looking for a writer these days. You need to be able to do a little bit. I mean, obviously, if you're a if you're a full blown journalist like I am, then writing's your bread and butter. But you still need to be able to have those other skills in your back pocket should you need them because uh, you know it's a competitive marketplace at the moment. And if you can say I can just write, I can just do shorthand and write that's it, then someone can do your job. But they can also help out the outlet by being able to do some of the photo skills for it, or maybe even. Recording a video at the match and and then editing it and sticking it up. If if you look before football finished, most journalists these days were were doing some sort of video content after the match that was going on social media. Uh, they will record that and edit themselves on their on their laptops or MacBooks and then push it out. So the days of just being a writer. I mean y- years and years ago, um, journalists used to phone their match reports in and there'd be an intern on the other end of the phone who would write it up and type it up and that's how it got in the paper. Uh, you know, those days are well gone. You need to have a variety of skills under your belt, really.
0: Yeah, and um, with, you know, now being 21st century and kind of access to players that has never been as close as, it, as it's as it been, you know, do you find, do you ever kind of, do you envisage that? You, you mentioned you talked to Virgil van Dijk um, post-game at the Atletico game. Do you reckon access, you know, these kind of like, I I don't know if you've watched the American sports, but obviously they do like locker room chats. Like they literally are right in the face of the player post game. Do you reckon that's going to be something we see more often from like, um, from especially, well, I mean, that's more sports journalists, but do you reckon that's something we're going to see more often in the future?
1: In in sports? Yeah. Um, If we look at how, Sports is going to have to come back at some point um, because, you know, the economy is going to recover. People are going to start going back to work. If you look at Germany now, shops are open. You can go and buy a pair of trainers in in Berlin if you want. So, you know, non-essential people will go back to work. And um, unless you're covering COVID-19 stories, you know, you are a non-essential worker as a journalist. Um, Mm -hmm. And sports will come back and it's going to be slightly different because if you listen to uh, everybody that matters, scientist wise, you're not going to see... Crowds at Formula One, you're not going to see crowds at football. You're yeah. not going to see crowds at cricket, darts. You know, Golf will be played behind closed doors. Um, they're going to have to look at different ways to to capture people's attention. So what you've just described there, locker room chats that they have in the States, that might become um, something yeah. that broadcasters are going to have a look at. But, of course, it doesn't it all matters on what this social distancing is going to be, how far away. You know a play is going to be should the premier league come back there'll be no mix zone there'll be no open press conferences so um sports broadcasting is going to have to learn on the cuff very very quickly
0: yeah and i you know i, I think it was the telegraph um who had this report about how apparently there's a plan about how many people are going to be allowed at the game and they had like 28 written journalists or something was included and to me i, I don't know about i don't know what what you thought of it but i it seems what that's that's not going to be something that's realistic to have twenty eight or so journalists who you know could be writing it up from home. Like I did, I just it, To me, it was just I don't know. I I mean, I mean, I'm, I put it now to you to kind of just share your thoughts on that. But to me, it just seemed a bit. It just seemed unrealistic.
1: Yeah, I mean, without trying to do myself out of a job, I think it is yeah. a bit unrealistic. If you look at the DFL proposal for the Bundesliga to come back, I think they've capped it at ten journalists um, per match day. I mean, you could probably argue that that's too much. Because um, don't forget that that doesn't include club media. So, yeah. Um, for instance, a uh, uh, game in, as in at Germany, um, start of the season, I think Borussia Dortmund took five media personnel to Union Berlin, who also had five. So there's 10 journalists on site already or 10 yeah. media professionals on site. I, I think 26, 28, whatever it was, that uh, that that graphic showed is a little bit too much. But the problem that the Premier League has, um, and the EFL as well, is that they have a management company that looks after their accreditations, DataCo, Football Limited, and everybody has accreditation. So who do they start saying no to? So do they start saying no to The Athletic? You're sorry, you can't come. Do they say no to The Telegraph? You can't come, no to The Times. Yeah. Who do they say no to? And these 28 people or 26 people that you're that they've accounted for will normally be the, the the number of outlets they'll go for. So whether they do that, I'm, I'm pretty sure that some outlets will be happy to let their re- writers do it. If we believe what we're reading, all matches are going to be televised. So pretty much, yeah. you know, you can do it from home. Um, our, our outlet's going to want to be paying their staff to go because you know, journalists are journalists main outlets they don't pay for their train ticket there they don't pay for to, to park there mm. it all comes yeah, from the yeah. outlet and how much money they're making from advertising so i mean realistically i think that 26 number will be cut in half um yeah because certain outlets won't send as many so the telegraph can quite easily send three or four of its writers to a top game um you'll probably find that they'll just send one um, when football comes back um so yeah it's, it's going to be a challenge for data to say who goes who doesn't go i think that's why they've included everybody at the moment because they don't really know how they're going to trim it down.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to bring in uh, Joe Spagnoli, our deputy head of sport, because I think Joe's got a few questions as well about journalism. Hi,
2: Joe. Hello there. I've been ca- casually watching this behind the scenes. Um, I had a question yeah. because I've, I've done a little bit of well amateur sports journalism but also music journalism as well and I find like the connection between the two and the fact that you move from one to the other really really fascinating when you're writing these quote-unquote opinion pieces for sports because of course that's an umbrella term it could apply to basically anything do you have a preference when you're right for for writing either positive ones or negative ones do you find writing one particular tone more fun than the other
1: Um, it all depends on the outlet so Mm. they will they will set the tone really um I would say I try to be balanced um, but if it's if it's a negative piece so if you're if you're covering one particular club um, and they've had a really poor game or you know they've done something in the media that maybe they shouldn't then to try and balance out a positive that's already a negative I think people would see through that so it's just about being fair I mean me personally um, I like to do a balance report um, because that I think that is the fairest but I think everybody will know that if you write something negative, that gets a lot more interaction than anything uh, ever you'll do that's positive. You just need to see the reactions, not just on social media, but on comments pages when negative stuff's put out. Um, I think the most fun thing I like doing is is transfer opinion pieces because everybody's got an opinion on that. Um, Whether you get a good source or not, um, someone will always say, no, that's not happening, and and that's good to start debates. Um, But, yeah, I think it's about being fair and also about being responsible and... I think maybe that might have been lost um, over the last couple of years, the responsibility of it. And people are more than happy to push out um, articles of their own opinion, of their own agenda. And then they will look to back that up, um, which can be very dangerous.
2: I was gonna say I've seen a, I've seen a trend of that kind of thing an awful lot in the last few years in this country especially the sort of good the incredibly positive reception that negative reports of clubs get. I and mean, as a second part of that question, as a former music journalist, do you think that these again opinion pieces are similar to when you'd say review an album or a track that a band's put out in terms of like the objective critical side of it, or is it as you say um, more akin to balance than an opinion? I think
1: the the music side that is more. Um, you can't balance it. If you think a song's bad, you think a song's bad. And, but someone flip side of that will say actually the rift in in the middle of that um, song is epic and it's never been heard before. And you know you could say well, actually it's been on this album in the sixties or whatever. So that's that drives more opinion. Um, but yeah, for gig reviews and album reviews, um, gigs especially, you can get a band one night and you know they can blow the. That you, they can blow the crowd away and the next night they have a particularly bum afternoon and it's the worst gig ever so it depends when you catch a band really uh, but i mean music journalism it's just as opinionated as sport but if i was to say um when i was writing that maybe cast latest album wasn't as good as the last one that's not going to cause any more of a stir if i say that sadio mane is a little bit better than Mohammed salah so that you know that will get instant reaction or feedback from both sides so uh, it depends on who you're writing about um I found that if you write about Arsenal or Manchester United, no matter what you say, it will be right, and there'll always be someone with a criticism about it. All right,
0: thank I you. actually have a, I actually have a question about, and you talked about like the kind of reaction you get to pieces, and obviously you've written for This Is Anfield, which is a a, a site mainly for Liverpool fans. Um, but you've also written for Forbes, which is a bit more of a new an audience for, of professionals and stuff. Do you what's the, do you find there's a difference between writing for a fan a site for fans? Per se, as kind of a specific site where you're giving fan-driven content, compared to say Forbes, which is more kind of business-driven content.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, so I mean, I was I, I've written for this is downfield for years, um, and, mm. and I know the guys that own that very, very well. And you know, we've had a real good working relationship since to I want to say 2011. So um, I know how that site works. I'm a Liverpool fan myself, so I can write it from someone who stood on the cop and i can also write it from someone who's sat in a press box so uh, that yeah. gives you a little bit maybe more of a help to write it and when you're writing for forbes obviously that goes out the window they, they want to know more business side more financial yeah. matters the research has to be a lot better uh, and a lot more on point um, not that it's not for football but i can quite happily give my opinion on a liverpool game but i can't give my opinion on uh Uh, football club CEO if I don't really research what they've done what their incomings are what their outgoings are so you have to be a lot more careful The I want to use the term highbrow the more highbrow the publication is the the better your research has to be and the more solid you have to be on all your work I think fan media gives you license to say what you want really Um, whereas if you're writing for a dedicated outlet or mainstream media that you've got that balance aspect that needs to be in there Um, you've got the You've also got to be mindful. I'm always mindful that people see me as a Liverpool fan. So if I'm critical of Newcastle or I'm critical of Sheffield United, are are people going to say you're only saying that because you're a Liverpool fan? Which is where your balance your balance has to be in. And you know you make you need to make sure that whatever you're writing is truthful based on fact. If your opinion's based on fact, you're never in a problem. If you're just pushing out an opinion because you don't like it, then you may be straying into I think what we've seen lately, which are Unpopular or opinion videos from betting companies who are looking for interaction, and you know, fair play to them—they get that interaction because of the videos that they put out, which isn't journalism at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, and you obviously see the rise of um, fan-driven uh, football. Well, in terms of football, you see your fan channels, YouTube channels, Arsenal Fan TV, obviously being the most famous one uh, for you know just generating clicks in in a way as well with their with their opinions. Um, what do you, obviously, um, do you, when you write these articles, um, say, on a particular club or player and you kind of get, and when you get kind of that, oh, he's a Liverpool fan reaction, is it, you know, do you find yourself that you have to kind of just, like you said, with that balance, it, it, do you find it's worth kind of responding to? Or is it kind of just like you just hope that the words kind of just speak themselves on, on the
1: yeah, the, the, the last bit you said there, really. So um, I used to referee football a long time ago. Um, and you're always, am I doing the right thing? Have I made the right decision? Am I saying the right thing? Pretty much it works in journalism as well. You need to be fair. But ba- if you're fair and balanced, then you know no one has really got any kickback. And thankfully, I've not had that. I've covered most clubs in the UK, um, even Rangers and, and, and Celtic and Hearts. Um, as well, and clubs across Europe, um, and I do it from a completely fair and neutral position. Like I can quite happily appreciate Arsenal playing football. I can quite happily appreciate Manchester United playing football. And just because I'm a Liverpool fan, I'm not going to start my report that Manchester United yeah. are awful. If if you know they've got a very good side and they played very well. So I think it's all about being neutral and being balanced. Um, whilst I'm not afraid to say online that I'm a Liverpool fan, and you know my my, my Liverpool stuff is is pretty opinionated at times I wouldn't be as opinionated about another side unless I knew it inside and out and you need to, I think you need to be balanced and when people see that you're fair and you're balanced I, I don't think there's a problem I've got quite a good interaction with um, Everton fans because I've covered Everton and I do it from a real neutral neutral program and if Everton are good on that particular match then you know they get a report that says they're good however if they're poor they'll get a, a poor report but it will be based on fact like who had a good game who didn't have a good game you know was the right substitutions made what was a coach doing what the tactics been before so when you, you've got to be careful when you do spit words out onto a screen that you know they're based in fact
0: yeah i, I only asked that question because obviously we see a lot more of um social media maybe social media and social media has a, a lot to do with this but we see a lot of backlash and reaction to you know people ac- ac- like where are your sources accusing your sources like questioning things that you kind of that you know are facts and you try and project as facts and yet people still want to question it you, you know you've obviously you've you've worked I mean you worked as a music journalist in the 90s now you're a football journalist have you seen over the, like the years that have gone by kind of this and I don't want to bring up fake news because obviously everyone you know knows a lot about fake news but do you find it a lot you know you're having to deal with a lot more people questioning where your sources are coming from where's your information coming from
1: yeah because i think 10 years ago you could say sources say and people will go Oh, okay these days it's a lot and i think it especially in the past month and with the return of the premier league there's been a lot of this a, uh, a source at three different clubs that said we don't want to play we want the season voided and, and that's a big thing to write about so you're going to get a lot of kickback from that from various fans of various clubs and they want to know who your source is now Obviously, you can't say who your source is because you protect your sources. And if they don't want to go on the record, you can't then throw them in the bus and go, actually, um, you know, it was Glenn Murray from Brighton who said it or it was Raheem Sterling or, you know, it was Sadio Mane or it was Jurgen Klopp who said it or for any – you can't just throw someone under the bus. So I can see people are getting tired of it, though, and I think it ties into the mistrust of media, not just sports, but – you know, you're looking through the last elections, the BBC couldn't do right for wrong. They were either hardline right-wingers or they were left-wing, you know, liberalists. And depending on what your political view is, we'll, we'll decide on what your view on the BBC is. So I think it is hard, but I also do think, and you know, I'm not going to accuse anybody in particular, but some writers do use sources, say, to maybe validate their own opinion without having to put down why it's validated. So I could quite happily write something today and if I wanted to give it a little bit more umph, I could say that I've spoke to two people in a football club. That backed up my decision. Well, who have spoke to? could have spoke to two people that work in a canteen for all you know, but you know that wouldn't hold any weight to it. So that's why I think people get tired of, of sources say. And I think sources say for a transfer story is absolutely fine. But if you're dealing with something that's a real key topic and is football going to come back now or is it going to come back next year because of COVID-19? I don't think people are going to be happy for Sources Say because it sort of allows you to validate your opinion um, in a sort of realistic way without having to be realistic about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. You often find fans on, and maybe, I mean, this is, again, more specific towards football, but you often find Sources Say seem to be the justification for the validity of something. And, it you know, we have no idea what, they don't specify who the sources are. It's just that that somehow just becomes a justification.
1: Yeah, I think if, you, if you're doing an, an article um, and and your unnamed source is probably the, the biggest quote and, and the one that the sub will go with a headline for, you need to be able to have um, face, faced quotes in there. So one person may say this, but can you speak to someone else who's willing to go on the record to give the opposite opinion in that, or will they go on the record and back that opinion up? Um, whilst I don't agree, agree really with what Glenn Murray said, the other day, um, regards players playing. Um, not that I don't think he's got a right to play, I think if he feels it's unsafe, he shouldn't. But he also has to bear in mind that 24 hours before he said he shouldn't take a pay cut, so uh, there's got to be a trade off. But if he's willing to go on record and say that to the BBC, fair play to him. Because had the BBC done that report and said a Premier League player says it's not safe to play, I mean, that, that that's a very big quote for a very big story, and people aren't gonna be happy until they know who said it
0: yeah yeah um again again i've had i had a question in mind but again i've got oh no i've got it now
1: Um, i'm I'm gonna buy you a pen and paper and send it over
0: (laughs) (laughs) i know i know um you mentioned the athletic and obviously they've done a series recently on pieces that the unwritten pieces they've called it pieces that they've not that they've you know had the idea of writing and maybe they were close to writing it i don't know how much they got through it and then in the end it never got published Have you ever been in a situation like that where you've got something that you've written and, you know, it's been there and then for some reason it's just it never got kind of when it never got out publicly?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, that happens quite a lot. You you pitch a commission, um, you get a commission uh, and then you write a report and then you send it off to the editor. And then it's up to them whether they want to use it or not. Um, And if maybe your story changes or maybe that story is not really applicable anymore. Then they'll quite happily drop it. But uh, that really doesn't bother me because I, I'm I'm paid for the article whether it's published or not. So um, it, it can be frustrating. Or a a really good piece on Marco Grubic um, and would he really yeah. fit back at Liverpool? Um, you know, I did a lot of research for it. I spoke to a lot of people at Hertha Berlin and Liverpool, and that's never seen the light of day because football was cancelled. So um, mm-hmm. it, it might see the light of day at some other point. Uh, whilst it's disappointing. Um, you know, as a freelancer, I've received my freelance fee for it. So if that particular outlet wants to run it, that's entirely up to them now. But I think it would be frustrating had, you know, you'd put all that time and effort into it and then you don't get paid and, you know, we've all got to live and eat. And that's probably the biggest thing I'd say to anybody that's watching and everybody that's on your course, the, it's a fine line where you've got to give your work away for free to get noticed, but don't make it a habit because it devalues the whole industry. So if you're going to end up being an intern, I think we all accept that interns will be unpaid. But if you want to start trying to write for outlets, don't let them say, we can't give you any money. We can just give you exposure because at the end of the day, the NatWest don't take exposure as payment for a mortgage. So you, you need to, even if you're only getting a little bit of cash, you need to be able to say, you know, you're getting paid for it. You know, please don't give your work away for free because not only will it impact you, but it impacts everybody else in the industry.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Joe, do you have any any questions?
2: I, I did have something um, just off of that, actually. Because um, I remember when football was suspended initially, one of the fears was that these bogus transfer stories were going to become more and more published every day, just as the outlets were desperate to fill the void with something. Do you think there's a chance that... I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to be trash, journalism. It could be, for example, your piece on Gruitch. As long as the suspension continues, do you think that more of these transfer stories that were perhaps unused at the time will see the light of day as we head towards potentially a summer transfer window?
1: Yeah, it's a difficult one with transfers at the moment because I think players, and I'm pretty sure you know, players, agents and clubs use the press to their advantage. So everything you read about a transfer story a journalist will have got that information from one or three places. They'll have either got it from the player themselves, the player's management agency, or the club that's selling or buying. Um, so you're only ever reporting that angle that you're offered. So um, I'm lucky enough to know a few people at Borussia Dortmund, um, and if there's any transfers coming up, I can always ask someone at Borussia Dortmund. Now, they're not going to give me their players' view. They're going to give me Borussia Dortmund's views of the club. So I will report that. Um, but, he, uh, you know, everybody needs to be mindful that there's two other parties in as well, the buying club and the play themselves. So, um, yeah, but as regards these transfer stories, and are we going to see more of them? Um, it's it's an interesting one because no one knows what football is going to look like. So are we going to see no transfers in the summer or are we going to see deals agreed for starting the season after? A little bit like when Nabi Kater joined Liverpool. You know, he stayed at Leipzig for that year, but it was announced he would join the following year. I think we could see stuff like that, but... I mean, transfers generate a lot of clicks, which in turn generates a lot of advertising revenue for outlets. So you know, you're know, you never going to see transfer stories go away. Even if FIFA came out and said, we're not going to play football until the vaccine's introduced in two years time, you would still see transfer news on a daily basis. That's something you just can't get away from.
2: And when it comes yeah. to um, unveiling these transfer stories, you say you've got contacts at Borussia Dortmund. What I've always wanted to know is, how much effort or how much wearing down of these particular reliable sources that you have does it take to actually generate a transfer story? Because you say you've got contacts at the club, but I can't imagine that, unless they were particularly mischievous or they had some link to you, I can't imagine they'd be willing to give that information away easily, if that makes sense.
1: No, they're more than happy to give the information away because at the end of the day, you're going to get that club in, in the news. So one of the last pieces I did for Forbes was on Sancho, um, just rang up the people I know at Dortmund. I, I wasn't like, is he going to be sold? Because you'll never get that answer. You just they don't know. Them. Yeah, really don't know. Um, but they will give you their their side of it. So they're quite happily looking to offer him a new contract on an improved terms to stay for another year. So you just have to report that and then back it up with, you know, maybe um, linking in other pieces that colleagues have written. Um, and, and looking at statistics about Jaden Sancho, statistics about Manchester United and Chelsea and Dortmund, where would he fit? And, and, and that's how you craft your story. Um, but it all depends on your question. Like you can't just ring up someone you know at a club and say, hey, what have you heard about this? Are you selling him? Because you'll never get that answer. It's about asking the right question that once you get to know people, you know what they'll tell you, yes or no. Um, so when you do approach them you ask them on an angle that you know they're going to talk about and and they are quite happy to see their name in paper, as long as it's a positive. I mean, if you use your source and contacts and then write something that is derogatory based on that, you know, those sources will dry up very quickly. Um, it, It is a massive PR game for everybody. It's a PR game for the journalist. It's a PR game for the clubs and it's a PR game for the papers, which I think is what makes it so fascinating because, you know, a club will say, no, he's not for sale. And then you'll speak to his agent. He'll say, Actually, we've been speaking to this club, and they may be looking at selling him, but they won two times over his market value. And you get another opinion there. So, yeah, it is a very interesting side. But it's always something that, as soon as you've printed it, that information's out of date because, you know, it's a business deal and they move on very quickly. So, I think if you think back to the other summer, um, James Pearce, who's a wonderful Liverpool journalist, um, approached the club and was given the information that Danny Ward would be Liverpool's new number one. 24 hours later, he was sold um, because they'd agreed a deal with Allison. So that's how quickly football news moves on because you've got someone who's fantastic as James Pearce and exceptionally well-connected. You know, transfers move on so quick. The minute that was printed, the business decision had changed. So, uh, And that's where journalists, unfortunately, Get pelters on social media. You said this was going to happen, and five days later it didn't. Well, at the time you wrote it, that was the information you were given.
0: And what happens when it's the reverse? Say, I don't know. I don't know if you've been in the situation, but you've got a story about someone, and it doesn't present them in a good light. Um, or the club, maybe, or maybe the club don't know. Maybe they do know. But how does it work in terms of contacting them to let them? Do you contact them and to let them know? Look, we've got. I've got. I've heard from so and so that so and so has done this. Um did they then try and you know not redact the story maybe but like did they try and talk you out of it what how does that even work in terms of that process? Well
1: a, a club would never talk you out of it um mm-hmm. because I think you would then report that they tried to talk you out of it. what they'll do is they will give you it, it depends what it is. So if we look at something like um did Jack Grealish take a car out and crash it under lockdown? Yeah, there was the stuff there. So when the journalists they will have contacted Aston Villa. And they've said, "Look, we've got this information. We're going to do a story. What's your what's your comeback on it? What would you like to say to it?" Okay. Now, if you don't do that, it all depends on the outlet you work for. So, um, for instance, when I was when I was at Forbes, um, I did a story not too long ago. I think it was last month about um, Kevin McCabe and and um, their current chairman having a little bit of a fallout because of money that wasn't paid. Now, I, the the quotes from um, the quotes from the club uh, were there. From Sheffield United, were there. And they weren't very good looking on Mr. McKay. But although he didn't want the story published, he still his his people who look after him still gave a statement to balance out that story. Um, I think journalists have to be very careful. If you've got a real juicy story, if you don't go to that person and say, "I've got this information. Would you like to respond on it?" And then then you could be in a whole world of trouble because that information you have could be libelous. You know, at, at the very worst, it could be libelous you know, at the very least, it could be a load of rubbish, which is why you'll often see in pieces, you know, Newcastle United were contacted or this player was contacted and, you know, they're they're yet to respond. And that does give them the avenue to do it. But if you've got a source um, and they give you something that's really juicy, you know, you need to double-check it with another source or with another colleague who may be able to give you another line on it. I don't think anybody that I know would steal a story off me if I went to them and said, listen, I've heard this. Have you heard anything similar? And they could say, actually, you know, I've spoken to such and such who's given me this angle on it. Um, So, yeah, you've got to be careful because at the end of the day, people will try and use the media to to forward their own agenda. Be that a club, be it a player, be it an agent. So you must always double check your sources. I mean, certain outlets, certain outlets in the mainstream media won't let you go to publish unless unless you've got a couple of angles that can qualify that statement. So it's not just one person looking to make a bit of mischief. You should, should any legal action come, you can say, actually, I've got three sources here that have shown me that this story is in fact true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it, that, that bit always fascinates me, um, in terms of, you know, what, because again, like you said, any news is publicity essentially for a club, but, um, when there's an incident that might not present them in a good light. Yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting to see what they say and maybe, you know, is it, have you ever? Is it? I imagine it's frustrating when then they tell another outlet give more of a comprehensive kind of statement. I, I imagine that's quite frustrating as well if they if they choose to do that and then suddenly you know you've got a response that wasn't you know directly to yourself. It, it was through someone else essentially.
1: Well, um, that's just that's just the way it is. I mean, it doesn't matter yeah. who you are. Um, a club will always favour one particular outlet or one particular journalist because they've got a really good. Um, relationship with them Uh, and you see that you look at the correspondence um if you just look at some of the correspondence in the northwest it will always get really good interesting stories you've got david maddock who works at the mirror you've got james pierce who works the athletic simon hughes at the athletic you've got don king at the daily mail Uh, these are writers who clubs will contact and if they have got a story or they're just very well connected and they'll be able to get a story out out of nothing or where you didn't think a story would be able to be get and that obviously comes with a lot of experience and a lot of networking that those guys do. But um, you've got to be brave to be able to, to do that story. And I don't mean brave as in um, take a chance. You've got to be able to know that you're in the right to write that story because especially these days, people will kick back if it's if it's a lie or you know if you just made it up outright, um, then, then you can be in a lot of trouble. And journalists these days will find themselves in court, let alone um, their publication that they're writing for especially as a freelancer. So as a freelancer, if I write something and it's completely inaccurate and libelous, um, the outlet who print it and then get approached by will say, actually, it's, it's one of our freelancers and that litigation will be passed to me. So you have to be really careful to make sure that everything you write is factual.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, I, uh, Joe, I mean, I, have you got any more questions? Because I like, I I think we've got we've we've had a I mean we've had a it's been a fascinating outlook and and overview of the of the industry and how it works.
2: Yeah, I mean, there was one thing um, tied to the idea of players always wanting the publicity. If it get, if a transfer rumour gets their name in the paper, then ultimately well one party is going to be willing to speak about it. Do you ever find, or have you ever found yet when reporting on transfers, that there are players who want to stay out of the media's eye, potentially an older player who wants to stay at the club when there's fears that they're getting sold, or perhaps just a more, I suppose, introverted young player, just to coin that term, that doesn't want to be in the limelight at that particular point in their career?
1: Yeah, you'll find mostly that football players uh, are just normal working class lads or middle class lads, depends on where they're from, where they're up. They're absolutely normal people. It's the people that associate themselves that will want, not the publicity, but age, always say what agents say with a pinch of salt. Um, if players are willing to speak to you about a move, then that's great. But players are very guarded about speaking, especially when they're under contract because – you know, no matter where you work, if you work at McDonald's, you can't just all of a sudden say, actually, I don't like working at McDonald's. It's crap. I want to work at Burger King because you still work there. So you've got to be careful as a as player. And players are very careful about who they talk to, who they trust, because they, you know, generations of them have been hung out to try in the media. Um, but yeah, you always find that players who want to move are more than happy to talk. Players who are quite happy to stay where they are and maybe the club want to sell them, then you know they'll, oh, it's not up to me, it's up to the club. Whereas if, if you've got a, a really talented player who's maybe playing at a lower league club or a club where he thinks he can move on to and make a better living for himself and play at a higher level, they're normally willing to be a little bit more chatty. But it all depends on the player. Some players hate being in the media. Um, some players love it and embrace it. It depends on their personality, like in life. I mean, if you're you guys and you'll have people on your course will go, I don't want to be in front of a camera because I don't like it. And you'll get other people who go, put me in front of the camera because it's what I want to do. It just all depends on your own personality.
0: Yeah, and... What, what is it like when you're, I mean, and I, I get that I mean, we've kind of gone more into transfer stories, but obviously there are a lot more, you know, there's a lot more instances where agents offer clubs, players or something, like third-party agents who are not made necessarily affiliated to the player or the club. They're just, they've been contacted somehow to offer a player services or even in South America where you have big agencies own a percentage of a player. Uh, Famously, the Carlos Tevez story comes to mind and the Mascherano one is it what's it like kind of you know having to report on something on a with a situation where you've got like you know an agency and maybe a third party agent or whatever that you know you're not you're not necessarily familiar with you're not necessarily familiar with how it works
1: um you just have to be fair and, and be honest and i think once once you've once you've worked in the industry for a bit you can tell quite easily if someone's trying to spin you a yarn um be that a third party be it an agent be it a club um, be it, you know, someone who's got their own opinion. If 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 there's truth in what they're saying, you can pick that up pretty quickly. And if there's not, there's not. And you can either write a positive or negative story about that, should you wish. But, I mean, dealing transfer, dealing with transfers is always difficult because um, you are a tool to get that particular person's um, thoughts and wants out there and be that club, be it a player, be it an agent. Um, I think we've seen it the last couple of weeks and we see it, around about april time and you see it around about october that's when you'll see agents making a move to maybe get their players a better move you won't necessarily hear from players until the window opens or it's just shut um and and yeah it, it's about it's about being able to see and, and and i think naive will probably be the wrong word but don't let yourself be taken as naive and i think that's i'll go back to what i said earlier whereas you need to double check anything you told double check it triple check it try and find out if there's any truth to it um because whilst there's a rush there to be the first sometimes the people who get the story out first are the ones that get it you know incredibly wrong and it's those guys who have done a little bit more research and will will drop the bombshell the day later that's in fact the correct story so i think the thirst to be first can affect quality sometimes so you don't let yourself fall into that trap but if you're in an outlet where first is everything then unfortunately you'll have to be you have to put yourself in that position
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, Joe, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I think I've, you know, this has been a fascinating conversation. I don't really have too many more questions to add really. About
2: you. Absolutely. Yeah. I've learned an awful lot. And I've done a little bit of like amateur sports journalism, as indeed you have as well, Josh. Um, yeah, yeah I've, I've learned an awful lot over the course of this hour. Thank you very much, Chris, for joining us. And I cannot wait for a discussion about the Bundesliga in the next hour. That's
1: cool. It's yeah. Just to, to anybody, um, and everyone on your course, unfortunately, people will have to start at the bottom. So don't say, oh, I've only done a bit of amateur sports journalism because that's where everybody starts. If, if you want to report on the Premier League, you have to cut your teeth in, in the National League or you know, in non-league journalism. You can't just jump straight into the top. You need that experience to back it up. So, yeah, don't just ever say, oh, I've just done a little bit of amateur because everybody's been an amateur journalist at some point. Yeah, don't put yourself down. And if you want to aim for the top, aim for the top, but be aware that you have to start at the bottom
0: yeah yeah um it's been a fascinating conversation we're going to continue with the football in a bit chris do you want to i i'm gonna you are you happy to take a five minute break or so oh
1: yeah to... yeah definitely i've drunk nearly a liter of water <laughs> yeah, and
0: sure sure i'll let you i'll just remove your stream we'll, we'll catch up with you in just a little bit uh um yeah, some fascinating some fascinating stuff, Joe. Um, it's the, yeah, it's the kind of interview
2: we've never really done before as well, which is just even better. Um, the, the insight into transfer stories as well, which is, because I've always assumed maybe not on the maybe not on the part of more reliable outlets but i always get the impression that the thirst to be first is the thing that drives them all especially when you consider as chris um, alluded to that whenever you're reporting on a transfer story it's already basically out of date these things move so quickly especially within a condensed window like especially the january transfer window only 31 days to do all your business um but yeah, I'd never really considered just how quickly it moves on before. In the sense that, if you, if in the time it takes you to type up a five hundred word article about what the agent of a player has told you, that news could be completely out of date.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's it's such a fast changing, you know, news cycle that we're in right now. It's yeah, it's it's incredible. Um, and yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating conversation. Obviously, you know if anyone wants to follow chris i think we've put it down in the video description at the bottom on twitter i mean it's at chris 78 williams i hope he doesn't mind me plugging that um yeah and if anyone wants to it wants us to bring in more interviews first of all we are looking um i can probably i'll just probably say it now we've got one coming up on wednesday which is someone different a different obviously someone different from the football industry um but in a different role at least um so we've got that coming up um but if people want other kind of interviews uh where you know we, joe and i were happy to find you know try and make that happen as a rural sports team we're trying to make you know people on cricketers on hockey players tennis players or even more journalists and broadcasters because, because i feel like everyone's in the same boat so um and you know as chris alluded to Pete uh hopefully we can get a few more journalists and broadcasters on just to give their experiences as well um so yeah guys let us know in if you follow our socials which are in the video description below join the raw sport 2019 20 group as well that's a great way to kind of stay keep updated um I'm, I'm gonna put a poll up later on um for um for what kind of guests people would like uh and yeah i think is i'm just gonna i'm gonna just check if Chris is good. Chris is good to come back on. Yep. So we're going to going to bring it on for the football part, which I don't know, maybe some people were waiting for, maybe some people have just joined in. I have no idea, but um let's let's bring you back in. All good, Chris?
1: You yeah, know, yeah, a lot better now.
0: <laughs> um let's start with we'll we'll get to the Bundesliga in a sec, which is our main kind of focus. But let's get to there was a bit of news, there was news I think on Tuesday it came out. It was it came out that the French Federation and league one had agreed to end the season there uh, in conjunction with the government's, uh, you know, ruling to stop live sport until I think it's August or September. Um, You put out an interesting tweet about the ramifications it might have for PSG and obviously the champions league, which is still on pause, that hasn't been finished yet. Do you want to just explain, because you've written extensively about UEFA club competitions, do you want to explain what, it, what are the consequences that the decision had on um, PSG and the Champions League?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So, let uh, me take it back maybe a couple of weeks, and I've lost all track of time. So, this might be two weeks ago, it might be two months ago, I'm not 100% sure. But um, just after football uh, was stopped, I think the Premier League stopped, and then, you know, the Bundesliga after it, and then everybody else from that. Once those leagues stopped, UEFA very quickly said, um, that at some point the games would have to continue. We're not going to take you going, actually. We're just going to cancel a season. We're going to avoid it. And then for next season's Champions League, we're just going to put in the same teams that are in this Champions League. UEFA said, well, no, that's not going to happen in our competition. So a few leagues cancelled. Um, Belgium was the first. Uh, they still had to declare a champion. Um, then the Dutch cancelled. Um, they wouldn't declare a champion because AZ and Ajax are locked on points. UEFA still made them um, choose between who goes into next season's competition, who goes into the qualifier, um, and then obviously the French have cancelled and and they've gone for points per game. Now, France is the first of what we call the traditional big five leagues to cancel. So mm-hmm. um, the other four haven't yet. Germany, um, Spain, Italy and England haven't decided yet. Uh, and that had massive ramifications for PSG and for Olympique Lyon, um, who are both um in the latter stages of the champions league um so psg are obviously through to the quarter final um olympic leon are still only halfway through their round of 16 game but hold the one nil advantage over juventus so
0: yeah
1: uefa want those competitions to come back they've said that um, leagues must allocate on sporting merit so like the french have done they've gone to points uh, they're just going to take it as it was in the last match day um, and you know who's going to be relegated from that? Who's going to go into next season Champions League? But the the big problem for those two sides is that now they can't train, um, and they will be expected to play at the minute. In the now, whether the Champions League goes on or not, you know, I have absolutely no idea, and I don't think anybody yep. has at the minute. But as it stands, um PSG and Lyon still have games to play, uh, and they mm-hmm. can't train. So how are they going to do that? And I think uh, owners of PSG um, have said that they're going to look at moving the team to somewhere that's not infected um, there's a couple of countries in europe i think uh, maybe a couple in the world where they're going to have to train and play those games um but yeah it's thrown up a big quandary for the french um, some of their teams now uh, are looking at legal action leon especially um mm-hmm. because they said even though they've had a poor season they could still probably reach the champions league or you know they think they maybe can go on and win it and qualify for next season as well um so the earlier This is what gets me. How how some leagues not gets me. It it makes me wonder why some leagues have gone for this dismissal so early. Because you know, fifty days ago, or maybe I think it might be even fifty-five days ago. Now, I was at I was at Anfield for Liverpool against Atletico Madrid. There was fifty-five thousand people there. Fifty days later, I can only go out and get some bread if I really need to. Who knows what the next fifty days are going to look like? Which I think it was a, a strange one for me to see why some leagues had clamored to finish so early and others like the bundesliga and Serie A, premier league the league are are all looking at coming back when it's safe which i think is what uefa wanted and ultimately uefa will get what it wants because you know the biggest money is in the champions league
0: yeah i'm just gonna add uh by the way guys i'm gonna add luke edwards he's joined us hello luke hello how's it going Uh, um so we're just talking about the the league one decision uh, and the ramifications it has. Obviously, Chris, it meant Stad Wren got into the Champions League. I think it's the first time in their history. Um, so that is, you know, that's a, it's a big achievement for them. But like you said, uh, John Michael Orlas, who's quite vocal, should we say, <laughs> off the field, yeah. uh, he, he said um, that they might, that they're definitely going to go to take it to court. And I don't know, there's been conflicting reports about Leon players might having a non Champions League exit clause. Do you know, I mean, obviously you you specialise more in the Bundesliga, but do you you know much about that? Or do you reckon, and is that a common practice at many clubs as well? Yeah, yeah.
1: so Leon do have, um, I know for a fact, they've got four players who are on um, Champions League non-qualification release courses. Obviously, I'm not going to say who those four players are um, because it wouldn't be the right place for me or right time for me to say that. But I do know for a fact that they do have four players. um, and, And that's just from... Um, from covering the Champions League and from speaking to various officials at various clubs because a few of those Lyon players are highly wanted and highly regarded. So that is what's driving um, Lyon's main aim and the fact that they can't train to complete this season's Champions League. I mean, if they've been playing very well, could they win it? Probably not. But I think if you look back to Champions League history, some of the teams that have won it, you would say, well, maybe I didn't think they would win it you know, six months ago or eight months ago when the season started. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's going to be a difficult one for Leon. But, I mean, that is not uncommon. Um, players have release clauses for all sorts of reasons. They have higher release clauses um, for some clubs and lower release clauses for other. So players, if one particular player wants to play at Bayern Munich, his release clause might be 35 million euros for everybody else, 25 million for Bayern Munich. So it all depends on, on what their contract is and, and what their contract was negotiated for. But you will find that some of the teams, some, not that Leon are a lower downside, but some of these teams that maybe get into Europe occasionally or don't go as prolifically far into it, will have players who want to leave. And the way they can get them to sign another year is to say, actually, if if we don't make the Champions League next year, you can go for a cut price or you can go for free. So, yeah, it's not an uncommon release clause um, at all. It, it's quite uncommon in England, um, but on the continent, especially Germany, release clauses are, are quite a big thing. However, they're now starting to clamp down on them because they're being exploited by the Premier League. So um, well, Premier League clubs have come in for, for players on release clauses and they've lost a lot of money. So they're trying to take release clauses out. But on the continent, it, it's pretty much other thing.
0: Yeah, Joe, Luke, do you have any questions for Chris about, I mean, the League One decision? I'm just fire
2: away. Other than that, I really want to know who the players are, like, <laughs> or are who have the release clause. I could probably guess a couple of them, but again, yeah, I not really the To be honest,
1: you, you, you will be able to guess them. Um, it's yeah. just that I'm going to say
2: I'll just I'll just try and f- read off my extensive source list at Olympique Lyon to try and find out who the players are. Um, just looking at the table, it is interesting that Lyon really do have a case, not necessarily for the Champions League, but for Europa League places in particular. Yep. The gap in Ligue 1 at the moment between 5th uh, and 9th is only actually one point. Um, even AS Monaco, who had a dreadful start to the season, are in that discussion. So I think unlike the Belgian Pro League dis- decision, which was made relatively amicably I dare say for the majority of the league it seems like there are a lot of teams in France big clubs as well not just Lyon but Monaco um, not to mention the relegate the um, relegation elect sides uh, Amiens and Toulouse who will probably take legal action against this this is you know probably the the league closure so far that's going to have the uh, most negative implications in the next few months I dare say.
1: Yeah and that's why all the other top four leagues have stuck with we're going to play when it's safe to do so. I think the only problem they've got is this cut-off date that UEFA have given them because UEFA want to hold the Europa League and Champions League endings. So if if there was no European competition, um, I think we could see this season concluded in August or September. But, of course, UEFA don't want that. They want the new season to start, I think, round about September because they can then... Get their own competition back underway or they can finish their own competition um I, this these unrealistic time frames are coming from uefa and, and that's purely because you know just like the other leagues around the world that rely on television money and corporate sponsorship uefa rely on them heavily for national games mm-hmm. you know don't write off the reasons why they want to get playing international football again because it brings in a lot of money for them but their Champions League brings in a hell of a lot of money and Europa League two brings in a lot of corporate sponsorship. So yeah, it's a difficult one, but yeah, I mean, if you look at, if you look at the league one table, I mean, looking at it now to lose, you know, they don't really have a leg to stand on. They've only won three games all season. So I think we could pretty much say they were going down only they 10 points from safety. You know, they're like 16 points from, from 17th. So, or 17 points from 17th. So, I think they were out of it. That's probably just a cheeky little legal battle. But um, Olympically on, yeah. I mean, they're right in that hunt for, I mean, if it went the wrong way, they could get that third slot quite easily. But, I mean, they'd have to rely on a lot of games going against them. But it's the, this is the time of year where, you know, Leicester City escaped the other year and went on to win the Premier League the season after. So, you know, and teams have blown leads all around, you I know, mean, they dropped out of the Champions League. They've missed out on the league. This is a real critical part of the season. So to go to points per game, I can see why some places like on are real against it, because who's to say they're not going to win their final 10 matches? I think we just don't know, do we? Definitely.
3: Yeah, um, I've, got a, I've got a question. So it's more about you've talking about a lot of the um, financial impacts that is going to be had on these sides as a result of the coronavirus crisis. Um, there's a lot of talk of potentially us not having a Champions League or Europa League at all next season. Uh, Nobody knows really what's going to be going on with travel restrictions to certain countries. Um, My question is, what sort of a long if if we don't let's say in the eventuality we don't have any european competition next year what could the long term impacts be on not necessarily the uh, the bigger premier league or bundesliga clubs or more towards the i uh, don't clubs in the belgian league or even the uh, the kind of one off uh, european qualifiers in the case of like stad Rene? Um, i mean
1: the the financial implications to to some of the smaller clubs will be massive because um I think when you look at the Champions League group stages, there's always a couple of teams you're like, oh, they're going to get battered. And they do. So if you look at Carabag, for instance, who generally make the group stages, they're very good, but they rely on that that money because they get the same payments, whether they win, lose or draw, as the, the people who finish top of that group. So that's a lot of money to them. Now, you know, some of the most richest clubs in the world, Barcelona, Real Madrid, uh, Manchester United, they could maybe sup up, losing a little bit of of television money but certainly you know some of the lower league clubs or some of the lower countries certainly can't afford that so then that will impact them greatly um i think what will impact some teams would be behind closed doors it it wouldn't matter too much to let's say bournemouth who makes six million pound i think it is per season from the gate receipt but if you look at manchester united you will rake in 111 million pound a season from gate receipts that's a pretty big problem for them then add in the fact that they might not get 80, 90 million from television receipts, um, and then European television receipts, all of a sudden becomes a real big problem for clubs. So I think it'll affect clubs in the same way, but different percentage. So, you know, whilst Manchester United might lose, let's say they lose 200 million, that could be 20% of their income. But if you lose 5 million, but you only get 20 million a year, that's still 20% of your income. So it's going to affect different clubs in different ways. But... I think what it shows is how football is linked you know there's billions of pounds in the game but it's not billions of pounds of cash it's billions of pounds of electronic money that that is on a knife edge and i think we're seeing how how sharp that knife edge is at the minute
0: yeah um and moving kind of transitioning now to the league that you do cover a lot the bundesliga they've obviously they're the first of the they're the first major European league to kind of say that they, they plan to come back. They were hoping next weekend, but um, obviously there was news last night about, or yesterday rather, about the, the Cologne and the three positive coronavirus cases. Do you think that that will impact the decision making at all? Because I know they, they're all waiting on um, a meeting on Wednesday, right, to find out if they're going to get the go ahead or not. Do you think the the recent kind of cases do they will it affect the decision making at all?
1: Uh, Well, I'm going to say no, and and I base that on the fact that a colleague of mine last night spoke to a sporting director of a Bundesliga club, um, and they said it's not going to impact it. I think what we need to do, and and what's been lost in the UK is, I think we're looking at the Bundesliga returning through the eyes of what's gone on in the UK. So. Whilst if you look at Germany, it's got the same number or very similar number of coronavirus infections. It's had 7,000 people die, which is 7,000 people too much. But if you look at an average of how many people die a day on the roads or how many people die a day or how many, a year through terminal illnesses, Germany's had 7,000 people. You know, the United Kingdom's had 27,000 people. That puts a completely different you know, angle on whether football should return in the UK, is it too soon, etc. Germany, you know, you could. if we were in Germany now, I could say I'm just nipping out. I'm going to go and buy a pair of trainers because the shops are open. I can get on the bus I can get on the train. They've sort of got a, nor- a new normality coming back, which is going to allow the Bundesliga to come back. They've got spare capacity in testing. Um, you know, it, they're not in the same sort of problem that the UK is as. Ours, so they've got the test that the Bundesliga le- needs isn't going to impact um their frontline carers. It's not going to impact frontline carers in the UK because the Premier League are going to financially source them. I think people misunderstand that as well. They're not going to take tests away from the frontline because that's the government's responsibility to buy them. Now, why they haven't bought them? That, you know, that's that's a that's a comment for someone else who's far more intelligent than me on the matter. But but the matter is those tests are available. The Premier League are going to buy them. Um So in Germany, it's a completely different situation, um, and the biggest. Um, problem that German football has found is that fans don't want it to be played behind closed doors. Um, mm. that's, that's the biggest problem, which is a lot different from here, where you know in the UK now we're not even out of lockdown. You can't even go to shop properly. You know, the, the, we're still two meters away from everybody. We don't even know if we're going to wear masks when we go shopping. It's a completely different prospect. So I think you have to take Germany as as an individual country, which of course what it is with its own individual set of problems, and it's a lot further down the road than we are. Um, so I don't think it will impact it. In fact, I think it shows that what they're trying to do is working because they're testing players twice a week. Anybody that's found mm. to be um, infected is immediately quarantined. Had those three people not been tested, and I know for a fact that they're all um, asymptomatic, so they've shown no symptoms, they would have gone home, they would have gone to the shop, You know, they would have potentially coughed in their hand and then touched a the supermarket trolley, and then who comes along after that? So it, it will stop you know, spreading of the infection. Um, But it doesn't look good to us because we're in a different place than them at the moment. But I think it just highlights, you know, how serious a situation it is. Um, Now, whether it does come back, that'll all depend on on the government. And, you know, three people testing positive at FC Kern won't be a problem for them. It's going to be like how many people potentially could be um, infected at the games. That's where the problem comes from when you've got 200 people trying to run, you know, each individual game. I think three people getting tested In a small squad of 20 And they can contact Trace Who has and who hasn't got it It won't be a problem for them And certainly doesn't look to be a problem for them at the minute I think the 9th of May um, Was an idea that was floated And and could always be pushed back Because personally I thought 16th of May would be too early Maybe the week after which it would be the 24th Looking at now I I realistically think it would be a 30th of May
0: return Okay Okay Um, And Maybe you know, because this has been obviously an ongoing process um, and obviously, you know, you've got the league, you've got the clubs, you've got the German government, they've all probably been liaising. You've obviously written, you've written about, you know, we talked about the, the, the story about the chip in the Bundesliga ball. So you know how the Bundesliga make their decisions kind of as a, as a governing body. Do you, uh, can you just share to our audience like how, you know, what would they have, what would have been in their thinking process? Like how would they have kind of decided you know we think we can come back in may um maybe and we think we can if we get this right and we sort this out and obviously you know they'll have to. they've the fans we we you know we've seen a lot of reports about how the fans like in terms of the ownership model and stuff they obviously matter a lot in germany so the how would it is it going to you know the fan opposition to playing behind closed doors is that going to have any impact at all on their on their current thinking
1: well, the first part of your question: How did the DFL come about with the situation? Obviously, they've got scientific scientific experts in, um, virologist Experts have come in, and, and they've worked with federal and state government. Um, probably, might be worth explaining that Germany's a little bit different. So, in in the UK, um, you know, Number Ten decides everything, and then the councils impact that throughout. Uh, Germany's a little bit different. The state government. Um had and I when I mean by state, I mean the state. So the state of Bavaria, the state of North Rhine-Westfalen, they own the power, um, not the central government. So if they decide if the if the if 15 states decide we can play football and Bavaria say actually football's not going to come back, that would that would be a problem. The German government then can't say to Bavaria, you must allow football to go on. They don't have that power. So um it, it's bequest to in each individual state. Um and they obviously have sat down with the, their experts and, and have come up with a project a little bit similar, although I've not seen project restart for Premier League. I've not, not had my eyes on a paperwork. I would yeah. pretty much assume, it, you know, it's 99, if not 100% matched to what's going to go on in the Bundesliga. And, and you can see already by how many times they're going to test players, how they're going to move them around, etc. cetera. Um, and then when it comes to fans, um, German ultras are, are a real force for good um, but they can also be a little unrealistic at times. Now, um, they were a real force for good in getting the game stopped. The German Bundesliga was going to play play on behind closed doors. It had one match, um, and then it was cancelled after. But the ultras were against that immediately. They said, you know, health has to come first before finance. They're really good at promoting... Um, Equality and acceptance, um, acceptance of refugees. New refugees welcome. Um, They're always pushing for inclusion um, for all different types of genres in society. They're a real force of good, Um, but sometimes they can be a bit unrealistic. And uh, they they're upset that German football is so reliant on um, television money, and and you know they think it's only coming back for the money. And, And let's be honest, it is because German football is going to lose 750 million euros and there's 60,000 jobs at risk if the Bundesliga doesn't come back. And that's the main driver for it. Um, and German clubs are unhappy about that. Or German ultras are unhappy about that. But if it doesn't come back, there'll be no clubs t- for them to come back to. So yeah. it's, it's a bit of a catch to uh, catch 22 situation. Um, yeah. And I got a lot of time for ultras, but I also sometimes think that if everything was perfect, they'd find something wrong to complain about. Um, but on you know 99 on the whole they do a fantastic job and they keep german football what it is and why it's so special because it's 50 plus one fan ownership that you know they they make sure that clubs are um socially and morally responsible and they make they don't want their football turned into a cash cow which is what they've seen a premier league turned into and, and you know they, they do a very very good job over there and they do hold a lot of sway
0: yeah um Joe, Luke, do you want to ask anything before before we kind of start then to preview or, well, preview what we think will be the remaining kind of Bundesliga games? Do you guys have any other questions about German football and the governance? I
2: mean, it's more it's more the um, the government of Germany as a whole, or at least the situation in Germany as a whole. I know that you've been based in Lincolnshire for, well, for as long as lockdown's been going on. <laughs> but um, the stories coming out of Germany over the last few days, I I saw it before the... Um, the story of the three infected personnel at FC Köln, um, was the fact that the infection rate after Germany eased the lockdown procedures had reached or surpassed 1.0, which is obviously the rate at which the, the disease will exponentially grow as opposed to be contained. Do you potentially see, if that is the case, that the German government or federal the federal system that they have, will they potentially change their mind? And actually the Bundesliga could be suspended or cancelled and not maybe not cancel out right like league arm was but is there really a chance that if a second lockdown is necessary that the Bundesliga just might not come back in the next month or so
1: yeah it's an interesting one it's something that we're just going to have to keep an eye on for the next few days so it'd been reported that it hit one um the actual figure was 0.97 now it's been rounded up to one but if you if you extrapolate that across the whole population that 0.3 rounded up it does equate to a lot of people. So hmm. it's now also dropped back down. They found, uh, I think it's um, 0.76. Um, and that's just going by German media. I, I don't think it will affect it. Um, football's non-essential. I think we can all agree on that, um, but they do have other non-essential businesses open. So as I said earlier, if you can go and buy a pair of trainers or, you know, if I can nip into Saturn, which is the German equivalent of um, PC world and buy an e-scooter, then i can't mm. see why football can't come back because the person on the till that's going to send by me or sell me uh, a non-essential electric scooter is just in mm. as much danger as, as someone in a football ground so it's how the country looks at it as a whole um but i don't think it will affect it at the minute if we start seeing in the next couple of days that four people at Borussia dortmund five people at bayern munich ten people um you know at mainz or a few people at leipzig are starting to get infected and And that could be a problem. And then it also depends who gets infected. So whilst Cologne haven't released any names, they have said it's two players and a physiotherapist. But imagine if that's Bayern Munich and and those two players, are um, Robert Lewandowski and Manuel Neuer, they would probably argue that that's going to affect their ability to play football because they're going to have to put, you know, they're going to have to come up with people who maybe they didn't want to put in their first 11 in their first 11. And then that's where the key to will football return or not, um, is going to be i think we're in a position in the world where at the moment we're going to have to learn to live side by side with this and it's it's not putting people in danger that need to be put in unnecessarily but if government decide that non-essential people go back to work then non-essential people go back to work the thing that will stop football um is if five players test positive and those five players are five out you start in 11 that's where the trouble will be um you know and i don't say if it's five backroom member staff that doesn't matter because it does matter, but that doesn't affect the football club's ability to play a game. If you see what I mean?
0: Yeah, I mean we saw something similar when I think I, it was Arteta was the first positive case here, wasn't it? In terms of the I football think, industry, yeah, Arteta
1: yeah. um, was the first one, and then Arteta yeah. a couple of days after,
0: yeah. Yeah, so I, I imagine Arsenal would have lodged a similar argument
3: that they maybe they need that they would have needed him on the touchline. I don't know. Um, that was an interesting one because it came a few hours after the Premier League announced they were going to be continuing with the yeah, weekend yeah. Fixtures. yeah. So they, they copped a lot of slack for it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah so That's why they have to be really careful with when they do decide to come back if they choose to come back, of course. And I think when
1: we look back now, and that's a good point, that Luke, when we look back now. I mean, the Premier League were only going by what the government was saying. So mm. the Premier League was going to carry on. Because that Wednesday I've been at Anfield and there was 250,000 people going to Cheltenham races. So, you know, the government's view on on what we were going to do was a little bit different than what it is now. um, Which is why you're quite right. The Premier League need to um, plan um, to come back when it's safe. They've always said that. And I think a lot of people and and I get why they're saying it. They're going, how can even football think about coming back? You know, there's a thousand people, 700 people dying a day. It's not going to come back this weekend because that would be very wrong. But, yeah. you know, business, McDonald's are starting to look at reopening. Ask them the same thing. Why are you looking at reopening yeah. if there's 700 people dying a night? They're looking at reopening in four to five weeks. Now, you would hope when the Premier League wants to come back, which is what, June 8th, might even be a little bit later, 16th, you would hope that we're in a lot better situation now where it's unfortunately people will still be dying. Um, but it's going to be, dare I say, a level that we can – live with a little better because we have to remember you know, people in the roads every day they die of influenza they die of pneumonia dying is unfortunately the only thing we know is going to happen after we're born so it's about making sure that people don't die unnecessarily and i think if football came back now that would look a little bit um insensitive but it has to plan to come back at some point and i think maybe people get lost in that a little bit
0: yeah absolutely um and so, I guess now transitioning over to kind of a well, it's a preview of sorts. You know, we obviously there are nine game weeks to go. I think, am I right? Two teams have uh, ten games to go. They have a game in hand. Um, and we'll put down the ticker of the five, the five teams that mathematically, and I'm I'm not saying Leverkusen are going to win the title by all means, but mathematically they have a chance at least. Um, Chris, are you surprised that? you know with nine games to go there's still five teams kind of in that in that cluster in that pack that you know albeit we know certain teams are more likely to get to the top than others but are you surprised that there are five teams in the in the in contention at all
1: yeah most definitely um because i mean i've covered the bundesliga professionally now for four seasons but i've been watching it for 25 years um and it's the closest I can remember for a long time. Um, normally, as, as we've seen the past seven years, mm-hmm. six seven years, Bayern Munich have run away with it. Or it's not mm-hmm. been who's going to who's going to win it. We've known it's who's going to be relegated, who's going to qualify for Champions League. That's been the exciting thing. But um, before we broke um, for for the pandemic outbreak, I mean, it's one of the closest competitions I've seen in the Bundesliga for years, and it's, it's been a real joy to cover it because as quite you look now. Um, buying a top with 55. Okay, they came. They came better. Um, at, you know, once Hansi Flick got his feet under the table and got his tactics on board. But Borussia Dortmund came better. Leipzig have been there or thereabouts. You know, very new club, brand new manager in this season. Julian Nagelsmann, although he's exceptionally um, experienced for his age, it's still a new challenge for him. And I think you know them being where they are still now um, is a good sign for them. Borussia Mönchengladbach Gladbach were long time leaders for a while. If you go back to Christmas. Um, everybody was thinking, can they go on and win the title? And that's something that's not been talked about for 20 years. Um, Leverkusen, another side, um, brilliant side to watch, probably one of the most exciting teams to watch in the Bundesliga. Must be a nightmare for their fans because you don't know if they're going to win 4-0 or get beat 4-0. That's the beauty of, of, of Leverkusen. And I was lucky enough to be there a couple of um, times this season already, interviewed their sporting director and a goalkeeper as well. Um, and, and, you know, they're having a wonderful season. They've got a real good recruitment um, and they've got a very good family feel to their club, um, and I don't think they would have thought that they could be within touching distance of the top, um, or certainly qualifying for the Champions League again. Um, which is, you know, they're in a good position to do that when it comes back, fighting Gladbach for that for that last one. Um, and then Schalke, who had a horrendous season um, last mm-hmm. season, and under under Dominico Tedesco the season before that, uh, obviously got David Wagner, who's turning their side around and. You know, third biggest club in Germany by membership, quite rightly, back in the top six. Um, And then Wolfsburg, another team who've come good. I I went to see them twice in succession in relegation playoffs. And all of a sudden, you know, they're looking like they could qualify for Europe again. So, yeah, it's been a thrilling, a real, real thrilling season. Um, Standout for me has been Union Berlin, who've come up uh, from a Bundesliga. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to their first Bundesliga game against Leipzig, where they are hammered 4-0, but that didn't detract. From the atmosphere there, um, and then I was there for their next home game where they beat Dortmund as well, um, and that was a wonderful occasion. So they're a real good club, and, and I'm glad they've um, survived the drop because I can't see them going down now. And scroll further down the table, Um in Dusseldorf, they may be operated a little bit higher last season than their true ceiling, and unfortunately for Paderborn, they are at their glass ceiling. The 18th place in the Bundesliga is the best they'll ever get. Um, They're probably a a top 30 side in Germany, which would put them, you know, mid table in the
3: next league as well.
0: Yeah. um, Obviously a lot of the, and going back to kind of the top, a lot of these managers are, Relatively inexperienced in the Bundesliga, should we say? I mean, Nagelsmann obviously has been at Hoffenheim for a while, but this is his first season at Leipzig. Marco Rose, like you said, um, his his first season at Gladbach. Obviously, he had tremendous success at Salzburg, um, and then Hansi Flick, who just got his new deal, uh, new permanent deal, rather. He's you know been elevated to a position he's not been in before. Um, is there is there like a manager that stood out, or are you surprised by the success of? the likes of Nagelsmann, Rose, in terms of implementing their tactics and styles so quickly and getting so much success from it?
1: Um, yeah, I'm not surprised Marco Rose has done so well at Gladbach because he's a fantastic coach. Um, had Dortmund not got Lucien Favre when they wanted him, Marco Rose was top of um, their wish list for that. And you can see why, because you know that that Salzburg team he had, uh, Jesse Marsh has obviously come in and, and taken them to the next level. Well, Marco Rosa started all of that. And, uh, yeah, just looking at them now, you know, those 15 games that they've won, they've not won, though, by accident or by fluke. They play some fantastic football. A little bit different than than what you'd see in Germany normally. I think Marco Rosa's brought a bit of a fresh outlook to it. Um, But, yeah, you're on about Julian Nagelsmann. I think him and Leipzig are a uh, uh, hand-and-glove fit and will be for a, a number of years to come. Um And Hansi Flick, of course, came in and, and completely turned Bayern Munich around when... Nothing against Niko Kovac. I think he's a wonderful coach, but his philosophy and his playing style did never suited Bayern Munich, and he was the only person available to take that job, which is why he took it. Um, you know, he still won the double with them, but he was never going to stay long term because his ability to play the Bayern Munich way was never there. Um, Hansi Flick is exactly the type of coach that Bayern Munich would go after um, and and need, and he obviously has come in and, and turned that club around now. So. Um, yeah, unfortunately, you know, football stopped, but it stopped at the worst possible time for the Bundesliga because it's been as close as it's ever been in years.
0: Yeah, I mean, Luke, Joe, what? I mean, you guys obviously follow a lot of European football. What stood out mm. to you guys from this season? Um, what's been like something that surprised you or just been something that's been you can't take your eyes
2: off? well back when we were covering it week in week out it wasn't a case of five teams at the top of the table that were interesting us it was actually a case of 10 even 12 teams that were split by absolutely minimal amounts in yeah. the first let's say 15 match days I mean we were covering the Bundesliga every week until the end until basically the end of december um and the title and every european place was still wide open at that point the cliche in this country is to talk about relegation six pointers um basically half the games every week were top 10 six pointers I think that Luke termed it um yeah it's been a fascinating season to watch for so many reasons um a couple of teams that have let me down I, th- I I predicted they'd finish I think seventh at the beginning of the year I think Werder Bremen have absolutely shocked me this year especially from a defensive angle and also from the I think more from the off the field side of things the recruitment side's been particularly interesting Hertha Berlin all the investment that's come into the club since last season and how they just haven't improved. Now, obviously throwing money at the problem doesn't doesn't necessarily make it better. But even if you look at the big investments they made in January, Lucas Toussaint from Lyon, which I'm a big fan of as a signing, he doesn't come in till the end of the year. And, you know, Christoph Piontek from Milan. I mean, yeah, the the cliche in football these days is that you can rise to the top very quickly. Christoph Piontek is the living proof that you can fall even quicker. And I think this is now his fourth club in just two seasons. And since the start of January, he really did not hit the ground running at Hertha. So... You know, they're in an interesting position, even to the extent that they hired Jurgen Klinsmann, who I believe hadn't yeah, yeah. had a job for two years prior. Mm. Um, it's been it's, it's a very interesting, like league of personalities in the Bundesliga, which I don't think we've seen for a while either.
1: No, so I mean, Bayern Munich have got the nickname in Germany of FC Hollywood because there's always some <clears> you know some something mad going on like a film, and I think Hertha Berlin have taken that over. Not only in the, in the last window, they were the biggest spenders in Europe, uh, which yeah. I think is, is a pretty big statement for them to put out there. Um, and, and yeah, they're, they're 13th, um, their major investor, Lars Windhorst covered in for Forbes. You know, he's, he's a real um, character himself. Um, known for a, a couple of shady dealings in the past that he's, uh, he's been at a, his wrist slap for, um, Yeah, he's come in and and he wants to take Hertha to the next level. He wants to make them into a top four side. Um, And and he put his money where his mouth is. Not only did he spend a lot of money, he's also earmarked um, building for a new stadium for Hertha because although they're a very well-supported side, uh, I'm sure you guys know they play in the Olympic Stadium, which is the national stadium, they need... A stadium that holds about 40,000. If you could get Hertha Berlin to maybe even forty 000 to 45,000 stadium, that would be one of the most intimidating places to play in. Unfortunately, the noise gets lost in the size of the Olympic Stadium and the fact that normally the top tier is pretty empty. But that still gives them an, an average gate of 50,000. It just gets lost in such a big stadium. A little bit like Tottenham found at Wembley. Um, but yeah, that Hertha Berlin does show that you can't just throw money at the situation. Jürgen Klinsmann came in, big, big name um for this big money uh and yeah it was uh it was a roller coaster ride of, of what was it 50 days max um i was there i was flying back from hamburg um the day he did his facebook live where you know he said he was leaving it was it was a real film i'm sure someone will make a film about in germany it's a crazy situation um and her the building because if they drop down, you know that massive investment by Windhorst, he's, hes bought now 49% of the club. He's invested a lot of money somewhere in a region about 300 million euros. If they are to drop down to the second division, that all of a sudden um, makes that club's investment, you know, twofold in the in the negative. Um, it's going to be real interesting for them. Um, I think they're probably the club that have let down the most, looking in, and their fans will be threaders with them completely. Um, but, but yeah, massive surprise for them. Um, yeah, real big surprise. But definitely one to keep an eye on. Should the Bundesliga come back? Because if they if they can't adapt to you know playing in in front of no fans, um, in closed stadiums, uh, if if they if it all goes wrong for them, I think they could be one of the clubs that goes to the wall. Um, should they get relegated, and and then this new football is behind closed doors until and maybe next March or something, they'll get less money from being in the Bundesliga too. They'll still be hemorrhaging outgoings and um, with players on high wages. So, yeah, they'll be a really interesting club to look at.
3: Uh, yeah. You mentioned the, the, um, the, the Zwei Bundesliga a couple of times. I've looked at the table now and um, I'm surprised by the size of the couple of teams that are in that division, likes of Stuttgart, who won the league just over 10 years ago. Um, you've got likes of Hamburg who have been a mainstay of the Bundesliga for many years. I think they only got relegated very recently. Um, how much have you watched those teams this season? Because I've seen Stuttgart's um, play their, their squad. and they've got, they've got likes of Mario Gomez and, you know, some real big names in that side. Um, so my question is, do you think, um, you know, at a relegation playoff because that I believe that happens with the sixteenth place team? Yeah. 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 Do you think that any of these Bundesliga, these Zwei Bundesliga sides could beat a relegation candidate from the Bundesliga? And um, do you think that next season should they end up getting promoted? How do you think they'll fare in the Bundesliga, um, competing with other top sides? Um, Armani
1: uh, Armani Bielefeld, how will they, yeah. how will they cope? Yeah. Um, look, so first. The, the, the relegation playoff is is probably one of the best two legged games I've ever covered uh, as a sports writer. It's just unbelievable because of what's at, what's at stake, and there's a lot of things at stake. Um, and and it's also fascinating because if you just if you're in the Zwei Bundesliga and you just make that third place at the end of the season, you're obviously you're elated and you're on a massive high. If you just make that 16th place on the very last day, all of a sudden you're in a massive low. Um, And then you've got the mental side of the game, which I think, you know, is a massive part of football. But as it stands, um, you know, Stuttgart went down. They were beaten in in the playoff last season by Union Berlin, which is the first time it happened in a long time. Um, I think Hamburg would be favourites to go up against whoever they faced in that 16th slot from any of the the four teams that are available to go in it. Um, Armani Armani felt brilliant, real nice club, real nice club, real good local feel to it. Um, unfortunately, I think they would be in a Paderborn situation, uh, okay. which is, you know, which is not to say that's bad for them because the beauty of German football is they've got two top divisions with 18 teams each. So I think out of those 36 teams, there are 30 of them which are really good clubs, which makes the battle each year for who's going to be in the top 18 um, a real interesting one, and it's also something that keeps the league so tight. I think you're you're on about going back to Christmas when. You know, there was one of maybe eight teams that could win the title. If you look at that table from back then, there was one of eight teams that could win the title. But when you get to ninth, you could also be relegated. I mean, that's just a that's the perfect league, I think, for anybody to cover. So, um, yeah, it's if, if you look at that table now, um, Fortuna Dusseldorf for favourites to go in that relegation slot. But if you look above them, Mainz and Augsburg, and even if you go to Hertha Berlin, um, I think Hamburg would wipe the floor with any of them sides, to be honest, and including Werder Bremen as well. Should they make that sixteenth spot?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um. Joe mentioned Werder Bremen, and one player who's really stood out for them is uh, Milo Rashica. Yeah. I think I pronounced his name right. You have um, name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's obviously impressed and. With Bremen in the position they are in, he'll probably. It's fair to say he's one of the likely candidates to leave. Would you see him? Because obviously, I think Liverpool have been linked with him at one stage. I I think um, Dortmund maybe as well. Should Jaden Sancho, and we can get onto Jaden Sancho in a bit, should he go? You know, would Rashika. How impressive have you been by him, first of all? And do you see him going to a, another higher tier? Bundesliga club or maybe even going abroad?
1: I think it's, it's a great question. So Rishik is a, a fabulous player. Um, he's one of those wide players that can play out wide. He can play in the central area as a striker. He can also be involved in a build-up play. He's quite happy to drive one-on-one at players, but he's also quite happy to be um, involved in a build-up. You know, that person to play that hockey pass, the pass before the assist. He can do all that. Um, I think if he came to the Premier League, he would be good. Um, if he went to a top four side in the Premier League, I think he'd need three to four months of acclimatization to get used to the league, which might be even stranger now because you know because of, of the, I think the level, the tempo of the Premier League football will, will drop slightly without fans in it. So maybe Rashika would be able to adapt to the game quicker. Um, but I think if he went, look at the clubs around there. I mean, Werder Bremen are a great club. Should he go to Borussia Dortmund, I think he'd be a lot more successful at Dortmund immediately than he would do if he went to a Premier League club. That's not to say he's no good. I think he could hit the ground running in Germany quicker because he can speak the language, he knows the culture, he he knows the club, he knows the leagues, he knows his opponents. That's the sort of thing you don't get when you move leagues. Um, If he was to move to somewhere, and he said he was in Liverpool, had been linked to him. If he was to move to Liverpool, I think he'd be an amazing backup for their front three um you know for probably for one of the, the wider players so either Mane or solo i don't think he'd be a like-for-like like swap with firmino but he can play in that central area and drop back so i think he would be good he's very um he's very versatile so he suits a, a 4-4-2, 4-3-3, 4-2-3-1. he could play in any of those formations um but i think it would be a good backup for a top four premier league side i think if you're looking for mid table and below we could probably walk into um, the majority of those premier league sides but you need a little bit of time to adapt um what's going to be interesting is players like him do they move to england because yeah. you know, do you want to move house at the minute um to a country in, in this particular day and age not only has he got covid 19 to deal with he's got potential ramifications um for brexit um you know for, for foreign players in the country what's his requirements to stay in a country i think that's going to be really interesting but um me personally, I think he would be suited to maybe look at the table now—a a top seven, yeah, top seven side in the Bundesliga. He, he could walk into quite happily, but um, Premier League would take a little bit of adaptation. But I think he could do it.
0: I'm only suppressing a smile because he sounds—he sounds very much like a West Ham signing.
2: Um,
1: I think he's he, a bit better than that. Um, <laughs> uh,
2: Understatement uh, of the century. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't,
1: I don't know if he would fit. Um, I don't know if he'd fit David Moyes' style of play. I think. Yeah.
3: I think any player, when it's they're going to move, they're
0: going to move to the, the right. Fellaini. Yeah. Uh, David, oh, David. Goodness, the, the amount of West Ham jokes we could make. Um, <laughs> but uh, like, as you uh, as you said, um, it's very hard to gauge, and I guess we, we addressed it earlier. But it's very unlikely we're going to have any big money transfer moves this summer. But a lot of players have stood out, and I've been linked to with moves. A lot of you know, stars of the Bundesliga have been linked with moves elsewhere um, throughout the season, uh, you know, that you talk about the likes of... Uh, oh, we're going to pause it. Uh, Luke, I know you got to head off. Thanks for yeah, joining I'm us, and yeah. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. uh, yeah. um, Take care, guys. Good luck with the rest of the stream. Cheers. All right, cheers uh, for Luke. Um, I, As I was saying, there's a lot of been players that have been linked with moves elsewhere. Um, you're talking about the likes of Dio up, up Meccano, you're talking about like... Um, from obviously Sancho, Werner, uh, Cal ha- Havertz as well. Do you reckon these transfers are basically essentially put on pause for next in the next window? And we could see that that next window, the next summer window 2021, there's going to be like a lot of cash kind of been thrown around. And maybe some of the Bundesliga players kind of treat this next or however much we get of the next season as a bit of a swan song before deciding to make a move elsewhere.
1: Yeah, I mean. I said earlier, you don't know, you know who'd want to move abroad at the minute. Um, yeah. I can't take a job in Germany if anybody's watching. I will take a job in Germany, so I would quite happily move. Um, but if I was a football player, there's a lot to to consider. There's also a lot to consider for clubs because um, I don't know if you guys know a, a website called Transfermarkt. It's, it's German-owned. Yes. Um, now, they do a lot of good work with, with agents, um, so their player valuations are pretty much spot on. Um, but they're market valuations, they're not valuations to the club. Um, so whilst a player's market value may be 80 million euros, the value to the club might be 120 million euros because you've got to go out and buy a new player, you've got to coach him. Can he do what he's doing in a minute? No. I think that's where market value and and, and club value are a little bit different. But they've wiped like 9 billion pounds off players' value throughout, you know, the top five leagues, um, and I think in the MLS as well. Um, and that shows I think the appetite. To spend in football's gone down but clubs will still want that money so um i did an article on Jaden sancho about two weeks ago um spoke to people at dortmund they don't care whether his market value is now 95 million euros they don't care whether it's 70 million euros they want 120 for him because they know in order to replace Jaden sancho whoever call, whoever they go after will be like well actually you just got 120 million for him so you know we want a little bit extra off you so I don't think anybody's going to get Jadon Sancho cup price, which then does he want to move? Is it the right time to move? And you look at Manchester United or Chelsea, do they really want to spend that money? Because they don't know how much they're going to get from gate receipts. They don't know how much they're going to get from television money. If the Premier League ends and no games go on, Sky and BT and NBC could quite happily say, you've not fulfilled your contract. We're not going to pay you any money. So all of a sudden the clubs have got maybe a hundred million pounds less each to spend. And that will impact them. Um, Story last night broke that Liverpool aren't going to spend for the entire summer. Um, I think that might be more of a a Liverpool wanted approach. So maybe they can get a little bit players a little bit cheaper. They can say, you know, we can't spend as much because we're skinned, So we're going to give you 30 million for a player that's worth 40 million. That waits to be seen. But um, transfers are going to be really interesting to see. I I personally think if football doesn't come back um, soon, if it's safe to and it looks like there's going to be no fans in stadiums next season until maybe the end of next season, I think we'll see very, very limited action in the transfer market. Or we'll see someone like Jadon Sancho agree to join Manchester United at the end of next season. So they will play out their last season at whatever club they're in. I can see that situation happening um, because clubs just won't have the money to spend right now.
0: Yeah, I only ask because obviously... You know, we've seen a lot of I mean and I'm sure Liverpool fans will know because they've probably kept an eye out of it, but Timo Werner's made heavy links himself coming coming out of his mouth saying he'd yeah. like to join Liverpool My <laughs> Clock. Yeah. Club. yeah. No, go on, go on. Um, um yeah,
1: they sometimes don't know how much clubs like that. Um <laughs> I don't think Jurgen Klopp's particularly keen on it. I don't think that. Um, I don't think that Liverpool's a club are particularly keen on it. It's almost forcing them to say buy me. I, I don't think that tends to work at some clubs. It does at others. I don't think it tends to work at Liverpool at this minute. That's not to say that, I think it'd be a great fit. Um, but yeah, there are players who are vocal, and then you've got players who are not vocal. Jaden Sancho's said nothing. Apart from he had a sip of water when someone asked him, take a sip of water if you're going to join Man United and he had a drink. I think that's the closest anybody's come to saying um, he might join. But yeah, it depends on the players, really.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, my only question there was kind of, was if has made it so clear that he's considering a move away, is are we going to see a scenario where he kind of plays out the next season or whatever and is kind of effectively just, he's just waiting for the move. He's effectively, he kind of just becomes a player playing at Leipzig whilst knowing he's not going to, he's not keen to hang around.
1: Yeah. So he did an interview with um, Bild last night um, in Germany to say, yeah. um, he, you know, necessarily doesn't want to leave at the minute. Um, he, you know, he's not said he wants to walk away. Now I think that's probably got more to do with the fact that clubs aren't buying at the moment. Um, he's been very vocal. He wants to leave. I think the Leipzig fans have been okay with that because whilst he's been saying he's very vocal to leave, he's also been spearheading their title charge. And, you know, I think he's one of the standout players when I was in the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium you know, in a press box that night watching it, only did he score a penalty. It was also an absolute nightmare for the Spurs back four. So he's shown he, he can play in a Premier League and he can hold his weight in it. Um, and I think had the situation been a little better across the world, maybe that deal might have been already sorted out by now because... If you go by uh, a lot more people who are connected at Liverpool than I am, I've certainly floated the idea that Jürgen Klopp and Liverpool are interested in him. Um, And I do personally think he would be a very good fit. But whether that deal gets over the line or not now, I think will depend on what future looks like. Um, But he's certainly a player who could move straight from the Bundesliga and, and jump into the Premier League, no problems. But then again, I did say that about Naby Keita, who sort of struggled a little bit to adapt to Liverpool.
0: Yeah. Joe, do you want to add any players that have stood out for you? Do you want to ask Chris about or any...
2: Well, I was I, on the on the Timo Werner situation. It's um, what strikes me is why it's potentially more likely to happen is well, it's a number of factors. Number one, obviously, uh, Liverpool specifically is moving to a German manager, speaks the language. He hasn't had experience, as far as I'm aware, with Jurgen Klopp. But systematically, I think you've already alluded to the players fit together quite well, especially since Werner can play out on the wing an awful lot. He's not because, of course, yeah. at Leipzig they basically have a rotating pool of strikers they are all very good in front of goal for Leipzig. Kind of, kind of, irrespective of how much they get, they will have enough money to bring in a, a replacement this season. They've had Patrick Sheik on loan from AS Roma. Of course, took him a while to get his first game, but actually, I've been very impressed with him of late. Um, scored an awful lot more goals than we were expecting but I don't know how much, about, I can't remember what the fee was because I do, do believe there's an option to buy in there, but it would still be a saving if they brought him in as opposed to Werner leaving. Um, so th- there is like there is a cause and effect of why it would be beneficial for Leipzig financially for Liverpool in terms of the squad, with the possible exception of Liverpool moving out someone like Gerdan Shakiri who may lose his bench position if Werner was to come in. So I can see why that's happening. The player that I've been well staggered by for several years in the Bundesliga who still has not made that big move in the league, because I always thought he'd move in the league as opposed to foreign, is Kai Havertz. Um, Obviously, he's had another great season at uh, Bayer Leverkusen. Do you think there's any potential that he could move in the next, let's say, 14 months or so, um, including as as late as next summer? Do you foresee a move on the horizon for him? Um, And if there is one, would it be to a Premier League side, a Liga side, or just one of the big, the truly big sides in the Bundesliga?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Can I see him moving inside the next 14 months? Yes, um, because obviously that you know it's a lot lot later than where we are now. Um, maybe not moving this summer. Um, I think he would be a great fit for Dortmund. Um, he would also be a great fit for Bayern. Um, I think we can probably say his young, tender age. He's one of the future German national stars, consistent stars. So he will be one of the first names on the you know German national side first 11 team sheet. But now, for the next ten years, I would think maybe, maybe, maybe not that long. Maybe next six to eight years, um, and so there will be top clubs fighting for him. Um, I think he mm-hmm. would fit. Um, it would fit a number of teams. I think he'd fit Manchester City style under Guardiola. I think he'd fit Klopp. Um, you know, I, I can't see him going there, but I think he could quite happily fit into what Brendan Rodgers is building at Leicester. So he's got the he's got the ability to to fit into a number of Premier League clubs. Well, he's also got the ability to fit into um, a number of a Bundesliga top Bundesliga clubs. He could probably make that move to one of the top Spanish sides. Um, would he be a starter? Would it be a move too soon? Um, I think a lot of players have seen what has happened to Philippe um, Coutinho um, and yeah. um, Dembele. Especially German players have seen what's happened to Dembele. You know, absolutely set the Bundesliga on fire. Um, went to Barcelona for a lot of money uh, and then sank like a you know like a heavy rock. Um, and that's not to say he's not a good player because he's a phenomenal player. He just hasn't fitted into, you know, the top two, in, one of the top two sides in Spain and he's not been able to adapt. I think a lot of German players have seen that um, as maybe a little bit of a warning for him. I know he's not German, but obviously he's played, you know, the highest German level. Um, I, think, I think Kai Havertz would be an excellent fit at either Liverpool, Manchester City, Dortmund or, or Bayern. Outside of that, you'd be looking at one of the top teams in Spain or Italy. I, I don't think the Italian style of playing is is up to him as yet. Um, I think he would have to learn a lot to play in Italy. Not that he couldn't, but I think he's technically gifted enough. I don't think he's tactically aware enough to play in Italy yet. I think mean, it's a very, yeah. very tactical league. Um, when I, he's a, Yeah. Young
2: lad when I look at um, the more a- a- offensively progressive sides in Italian football unless ignore some of the teams lower down the lay- tier but table who would never be able to afford Kai Havertz teams like Sassuolo you could even throw Atalanta into that mix, Yeah, he would be they a perfect fit at Atalanta but
1: they'd never be able yeah. to afford him yeah.
2: but there's there's no other sides towards the top of Serie A that I can think of that even use a player in kind of the goal scoring attacking midfield role that Kai Havertz plays um, yeah. maybe Napoli if they rebuilt but that's about it I think th- the club's you've outlined i was surprised that you mentioned man city i hadn't really considered that before but yeah that's just another player that can keep phil foden out of the team sheet for another five years yeah yeah it will
1: be yeah um well i mean but once again by leverkusen will want a lot of money for him because how do they replace him i mean he has he's been exceptional Um, over the last few seasons when he burst onto the scene. He's only a young player, so he's had ups and downs. He was a little bit ropey early on the start of this season, but he's going to be because he's nowhere near his peak. I think people forget that football. Midfielders hit their peak around about 26, 27. Mm -hmm. Defenders, you're looking at 29. Look at Van Dijk, you know, what best defender in the world. He's not 22 years old. And then you look at keepers. Manuel Neuer, I would argue, is up there with with Alisson. But Manuel Neuer is is a lot older than Alisson, so the older you are in football because of how fit the players are these days, their bodies are able to to keep up to date, but their minds are able to mature and, and they're able to play a lot longer. So um, it would be interesting to see where he goes because Kai Havers' next move would have to be, I think, for four to five to six seasons. I think if he went somewhere and flopped, um, and it's not a nice word, but Dembele has flopped at Barcelona, it could kill his career and that would be the worst thing for him.
0: Yeah, I mean Joe and I brought up a few players. Are there any players that you've been um, surprised that you want to throw, like, give a shout out, Bill? Like, I just to kind of a, a name that maybe people here should kind of follow in the in the upcoming maybe twelve months, fourteen months or so.
1: I mean, just look at the, the players that Gladbach have had. So um, yeah. Alexander play has been yeah phenomenal player, and um, Taram there as well. They've got some real, real good players. Now, could they make? I don't know if they would. I don't know if they'd make the jump in the Premier League just yet. But yeah. if I was them, I wouldn't really want to because they're playing some fantastic football at Gladbach under Marco Rosa. And why would you want to leave if you can, you know, it's always a question for a player. Do I want to leave where I'm one of the first team players on the team sheet? Do I want to go and leave and, and sit on the bench somewhere like you know, even Leicester or or, or Everton would he even want to go and sit on the bench there? He could play there, but he wouldn't get a starting he won't get a starting place like he would do at um glad back. So I mean they're two real exciting players that maybe people should keep an eye on. Um DRB over at um by leverkusen is like a really exciting player as well. and um, they've got some some real good recruitment. Um so yeah, keep an eye on by Labor. By Leverkusen are a wonderful team to watch, um, especially if you've got no actual passion or heart buy in because as I say, they can get beat four nil or win four nil. It's it's complete lottery with them.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna throw um Dennis Zachary has been terrific at Gladbach yeah, good, as well. Yeah. He's been terrific, and Leverkusen. I mean, it was a surprise when they let Julian Brandt go to Dortmund. I mean, it was. It's, it, I mean, I don't, They're not geographically rivals, but obviously, it's someone that they would be competing for at the higher tier, the Bundesliga. Um, and obviously, Peter Bosch is there as well. Who? It, I mean, he didn't have a great time at Dortmund, <laughs> to put it kindly to him. Yeah, no, yeah. Are you? I mean, are you surprised that he's managed to kind of harness this Leverkusen team and kind of just? get them to like play it as well as they can be given that he didn't have a great time at Dortmund. And given that at Ajax, we, I mean, obviously Dutch football observers would have seen him for a while, but we really just saw him for one season at Ajax before he made that move.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if we take Dortmund out, because unfortunately like players, um, coaches can sometimes be a square peg in a round hole. um, And I think, yeah, Dortmund were in a terrible situation, so they probably got rid of one of their best managers that they could have done. Um, you know, Tuchel didn't get on very well with uh, Mr. Vatska or Mr. Zork, so you know, he left. Um, then they brought in um, Peter Bosch, who who wasn't first choice, Lucien Favre was, but he, he couldn't get out of his contract, I think it was. Uh, um, See a niece? It was a niece, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. he couldn't get out of his contract for that. So they had to take in who was next. And Peter Bosch was the only available manager um, who could come straight away. So he was always a square peg in a round hole. And um, I think we saw his start to his Dortmund career. I think they were unbeaten until October. And they looked pretty good. But then everybody worked out how they could play. Um, you know, they were smashed by Tottenham. Um, and, and then they were, you know, they were absolutely battered by Salzburg. Um, that was a bad season for Dortmund, and I think now what we're seeing is Peter Bosch has found a little niche uh, by Leverkusen, and he's got the freedom to do that. Simon Rolfus is a sporting director, has allowed him that freedom. They also buy players that seem to fit his style, um, so yeah, he's, he's delivering good goods. And where by Leverkusen are at the minute, fifth. Um, if you look at the clubs around them, you could probably argue that they they could be fourth, but that would be dependent on how good Schalke are. Schalke are another good side, so. I think for Bayer Leverkusen to be in the top six, that includes Dortmund, Leipzig, Gladbach, Schalke and Leverkusen, they're probably where they should be at the moment. So I think Peter Bosch has got Bayer Leverkusen playing well. Um, I spoke to him prior to the Cologne game um, where where they got hammered um, away from home, Um, but that was just after the game against Juventus. And I said to him, does he ever get tired of the fact that people say he doesn't really care about defence because his whole mantra is if you score three, we score four. And sometimes that fails. Sometimes it's fantastic football to watch. Um, And he mentioned that game against Juventus where, you know, they were beaten, but they certainly defended a lot better. And you're always going to get beaten by by a team that's got as many stars in it as Juventus has on on the world's biggest stage. Um, And and I could see where he's coming from. They did play really well that night. And, if you look where they are um you know they have lost six games but they've also drawn five of those games so they've drawn a five on top of that and some of them have been from from games that look beyond them and they've also had some great results like they did against dortmund was at leverkusen that night um for that game and that they played like phenomenally well real good performance and yeah peter bosch has got by leverkusen operating at, at their top level at the moment and i think he'll be there for it for a couple of seasons the only reason i could see him leaving there is if you know they were to finish around about 10th or 11th which you looking at the way looking at the table now and looking at the way they play this season under bosch i can't see that happening um maybe they were to lose a couple of players they could but leverkusen are very good at getting replacements in
0: yeah um i have a broader question about um the bundesliga but joe do you want to ask any do you have, have you got any other questions about
2: no go for it i'm looking forward to this no i just want to i do. i
0: did, did want to just ask because obviously there's been a the trend of English players, young English, or not even English, young players from the UK, okay, um, moving to the Bundesliga has been, it's been a growing trend. And, you know, it's it's, it's interesting how the Bundesliga has now been seen as kind of a finishing school for these kind of youngsters. Whereas we've seen, I think, Oli Burks now at Alaves in Spain. It's not, mm-hmm. I mean, he's been getting games, but he's not quite had the development that maybe he'd have hoped. And, you know, Patrick Roberts went to Girona, I think, was it last year or two years ago? it didn't quite work out from there. So what do you think it is that makes the Bundesliga such a great uh, development kind of school, if you like, for the likes of Ethan Ampadu or Adamola ola or even um, uh, John Joe Kenny, uh, like these kind of players? What is it about the Bundesliga that makes it such a kind of great finishing school for them?
1: I think you, to answer that question, you probably have to look at what German football has failed to produce through its own academy. Um, and that is wide players who can attack at free will, Uh, With real good skill, real good discipline. Um, They're technically good on the ball. They're able to dribble at high speed, take on players. They can finish from any angle. They can, you know, they can pick out a real, like Sancho and even John Joe Kenny can pick out a really good pass. Um, And that's why Bundesliga clubs have gone shopping in in England or in in the UK, Um, is because they don't have that ability in their own academy. They've got, Very good defenders. They've got very good central midfielders. They've had a problem with strikers, but if you look at what Timo Berners doing now, he's a good striker, a good finisher of the ball. And they've got very good goalkeepers. They always have had, but what they haven't had and what they've failed to produce is exciting attacking wingers. And that's where you know clubs in England, academies in England, have been able to to produce those teams, produce those players. And because of the cut and thrust of the Premier League, those players aren't getting time i mean joe you mentioned um phil foden fantastic player could probably walk into i would say any other side apart from manchester city or liverpool at the minute he could yeah. walk into a starting 11 side um and he's not getting that i think the only reason he's still there is because he's a big manchester city fan and he knows he will get his he will get his time there if he's patient but
3: he's sancho-
1: yeah yeah Jaden sancho wasn't prepared to wait and he went to dortmund and you know I think people forget he was drip fed into that side. And once he was ready, then he exploded into that side. You know, he, he didn't hit the ground running straight away. He, he got 20 minutes here, 30 minutes there. But when he had those 20 or 30 minutes, he was exceptional. Um, he, he was able to be given the confidence and the freedom. And I think that's something you get in the Bundesliga that you don't get in the Premier League because, you know, if you, everything is so tight in the Premier League and managers' jobs are on the line week in, week out that some managers can't afford to give. At the Guardiola can, but some of the low, like David Moyes, for instance, at West Ham, he can't afford to take a chance on someone like Phil Foden. He needs someone who can play Premier League football. And, and that's unfortunately where the academy guys and the youngsters haven't been getting the game time and, and they've picked it up in Germany. I think it becomes a problem when German sides don't finish um, creating that style of player because then they look at having to buy it in from England all the time. I, I think you said there, Josh, that it might be a bit of a finishing school. I, I think that becomes a problem if those players then go back. So if Sancho was to go back to City for 20 million, then it would be a finishing school. The fact that he yeah. could go to Manchester United for 120 million would, would probably argue the fact that Dortmund were right to get him at cut price and develop him. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Joe, have you got any any other questions really about German
2: what? football? Or anything? I mean, obviously, I, I, call, I follow German football, well, religiously, as I do most of the, Europe, yeah, most of the European European leagues, as you know. So, I mean, I have a clue what's going over there. But um, if you had to, a, a very basic question to end us off, but title winner, 2019-20 Bundesliga season.
1: Um, Behind closed doors, by Munich. I think if we'd have gone full circle um, with crowds i think dortmund could have done it this season yeah um i think they will miss playing in front of eighty-six thousand people at westfalenstadion um that will be a a a real game changer for them i think bayern munich have got that quality where they'll just pass it around like it's a training game if there's no fans there so for me i think the table as it stands now um the top six i think is pretty much as it'll finish should the games come back
0: and actually joe i'm gonna i'm gonna I've got a last question of my own. Um, how do you reckon we'll get a season like this in the next few seasons of the Bundesliga? Like, how do you think this competitive season is set the standard? And do you think we're going to see more of these, like, five teams, maybe six, if Schalke really get their really develop third up under David Wagner? Do you reckon we're going to get more and more of a competitiveness back, uh, like a really you know top six kind of race for the title in future seasons? I think oh, it, it
1: all depends. Been... Oh, sorry. No, sorry. As I say, I think it all depends on transfers. Um, should Dortmund lose Jadon Sancho? Should Bayer Leverkusen lose Kai Havertz? Should Gladbach lose? You know, any one of the three players that we talked about that would be a problem for them. Especially if Bayern Munich sign Sane, um, then you've got teams around you um, getting depleted while the strongest is getting stronger. Um, should should the squad stay the same? Um, and and nobody loses anybody of key value i think we could see it i just think that maybe in a couple of seasons time we'll talk about football before this outbreak and we'll talk about it after this outbreak um as as we go forward um i'd be interested to see if the bundesliga is this competitive next season especially if it's behind closed
0: doors Yeah, yeah. Joe, did you want to say something?
2: I'd have been much more prepared to answer the question as to how it's going to be next year if we had had the last 50 days or so of football to judge it off. I think this is often the point of a Bundesliga season where Bayern Munich habitually just steamroll the second half of the season um, whereas clubs like Leipzig or Dortmund tend to fade away especially in the context of a title battle as for next year I think it's largely dependent on transfers but I'd also put emphasis on managers as well arguably the yeah. fact that the Bundesliga was so close at the beginning of the season was due to Nico Kovac great manager though he was not really fitting the bill at Bayern Munich um, Lucien Favre at Borussia Dortmund arguably didn't have the best start to the season either um, there's an argument to say that Erling brought Holland is one of the main reasons they're back in that title battle yeah. The question is, going into next year, it's not just about the players. Is Marco Rose going to be the great manager at Gladbach that he was this year? Is he going to have new ideas? Is Peter Bosch still going to be able to play that way, that way, at Bayer Leverkusen? Is, for example, David Wagner going to be able to use that effect of like, three-wing setup in that very defensive style at Schalke? Is that going to be able to you know be played at the same level or are other, going teams, other teams going to find them out? I can't really predict what's going to be. I don't think we're going to have a season like this um, for the next three or four years, potentially. But if you're looking at the trajectory of European leagues, the Bundesliga is very much on its way up at the moment because the quality of a league is not based on the team that wins it. It's based on the supporting cast. And this year, so many Bundesliga sides in the top 10 have risen to the occasion. It's been fantastic to watch. And honestly, I just want to see more German football this year because we've been maybe robbed of a fantastic title battle.
1: I, I think I think you spot on there. I think we have been robbed a fantastic title battle. Um and also I think Bayern Munich could have gone on and, and won the Champions League. Um yeah. especially when they played against Chelsea. I think they were really hurt Smashed last them. season by being knocked out by Liverpool. I think that really hurt them going out in the round of sixteen. Very unusual for Bayern to fall out that early. So and uh, you mean you mentioned there a key point that Bayern Munich tend to start to kick into top gear at the business end of the season, which is now, and Hansi Flick have got them like purring, um, like like a top level motor car, and and I think they would have, um, they would have had a problem with Dortmund, but maybe seen it out, but now it's behind closed doors potentially. I think Bayern Munich's class will rise to the top, and and they'll walk it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I mean, it's it's going to be fascinating, and obviously the interest that the this season has brought to the league has been tremendous obviously with the with the competitiveness of those top teams um i think we're going to call it there so my thanks to joe for coming on as usual uh, and a special thank you to chris williams thank you so much for hey, no problem, uh, enjoyed it two hours of your time <laughs>
1: um, anytime i'm i'm I, it's normally I'd, on a saturday i'd be like oh, I, I, i'm I maybe could do half an hour but obviously there's no football on at the minute so
0: yeah um we've put your twitter i think in the video description but do you want to just plug it um if you like it's in the video
1: description it's in the video description at the minute you're not missing out on much pictures of my dogs that's about it yeah the
2: content we need
0: (laughs) yeah definitely um that's going to be it for us guys for this saturday we'll be back next and we've got another interview as well next on wednesday so i keep it just follow our socials we'll we'll plug it um when it when it gets closer but thanks for joining us and have a good rest